Listeners, welcome back to the Ruthless Aggressive Podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Jake. Uh, episode 57. We are into 03 now. We're a couple weeks out from No Way Out. So we'll continue with the build that with two more weeks of TV, a Raw and a SmackDown. We'll see if um, Raw at least can improve on its fortunes from last week, where we had a um, Matt was on for an all time <laughs> disaster of a Raw. Just not good at all. But we'll see if we improve uh, for. For a change, um, this deep in the run after 57 episodes, I rarely have a guest that I've not had on the pod yet, but tonight I do. So let me bring in my guest. You can find him here in the North South Connection doing the the revamp, the new and improved Clotheslines and Headlines 2.0, and that would be Mr. Mike Rossi. What's going on, Mike? Hey, what's up? And thank you for having me. Um, you know, I've been listening to this pod a little bit here and there. I mean, this is a, a time frame that I didn't really watch a lot um, at the live time frame back then. So getting caught up every here and here and again with you guys has been pretty fun. Very good. So the, the ruthless aggression are a bit of a blind spot for you. Yeah. So I was um, like, Oh, two, I graduated high school and then went to college and just kind of fell out of wrestling a little bit. I mean, I, I feel like I always kept an eye on it. Um, but I think the tail end of like probably Oh eight, Oh nine, I was, I was a, pretty much a wcw guy i think Mm -hmm. and it just as they fell off i kind of fell off um and just you know college life i just didn't follow it as much and you know i'd always kind of like i had friends that did so i'd poke in on pay-per-views every now and then so i kind of had a gist of what was going on but i wasn't a week-to-week watcher by any stretch of the imagination right it seems like from talking to various people like if you're like maybe late high school to college age coincided with like a down period of wrestling you most likely kind of dropped out a bit like i feel like anybody i talked to unless they were like in college like jt always talks about basically his college years were um 
like the attitude era. So unless it was like that, like the Monday Night Wars, like hot and heavy, I feel like most people, if you were late high school, college age, you're probably maybe that was a it would have been a good time to dip if the uh, if the product wasn't at its hottest. And as we're seeing here, it is kind of it's still you know it's definitely not like than AD or anything, but it's definitely, you know, they're getting to this rebuilding period, especially getting into 03. 02 is a bit of a transition, but we're we're definitely getting more into a rebuilding period. But um, I'm hoping at least it'll give you some nostalgia because as we covered uh, last week, this stretch of Raw here is uh, particularly, uh, not saying the SmackDowns are like lighting the world on fire necessarily, but um, the Raws really are. They're in a real rough patch here with Raw. So I'm hoping the nostalgia got you through it, Mike, through this watch. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it was uh, the, you know, we'll talk about it, but I mean, the the real character development that they tried to do on Raw was was kind of, and but I mean, not really like wrestlers either. It was like, um, you know, your Bischoffs and, right. and your Vinces and stuff. So the matches were like a secondary aspect of the show. And SmackDown, it felt kind of opposite, like the matches were the forefront, you know? 100 percent um so we'll dive right into it i have a few not quite the um the uh the smorgasbord i had last week of news notes but there is one very big news note for this week in wrestling um and it's a very sad one because this is um this is the time frame where the great mr perfect kurt hiddick uh, uh passed away his career is one of the top wrestlers in the world he did prematurely with a back injury saw his life in shockingly under mysterious circumstances in brandon florida in a brandon florida hotel room on february 9th he was 44 um results of the autopsy were not available police were all over the place investigating etc cetera, etc cetera. uh turned out he suffered a heart attack he did have a family history of heart trouble which plagued two of his sisters but he also was of course a wrestler in the 80s which was a tourist for steroid use so um, everyone's always going to make that connection. And uh, Meltzer makes a note that Bret Hart, who spoke to his wife that evening, said that she noted that Kurt had been problems with he described as hiccups and a chest cold that wouldn't go away for nearly two weeks, but he had not gotten checked by a doctor. Those were with him that night before, said he described his problems as uh, uncontrollable belching. But I know this was a big one. Um, I feel like similar to uh, Rude, which was a few years before this, I believe. But um just like a super untouched, like he felt so young and he did not seem like a guy who was, I mean, yeah, he was an eighties wrestler and you associate all the steroids, but he was never like a guy you thought of as like being insanely juiced or like a roid freak or something. Um, and he, he always seen, I, I know in like the TNA days, he was starting to look a little rough physically, but I don't know if even then he looked like he was, you know, on death's door. So I feel like this was a big one for people because 44 is just so damn young and, you know, this is going to be, I think, in this era, one of the one of a few that are really going to catch. I believe I talked about Bulldog on a, a while back on one of these, but this is another one where it's just one of these guys from the from the '80s who just dies super untimely. Very sad. Yeah, they kind of they were passing when like you least expected them to during this era. It was kind of crazy. I mean, that continued on for quite a few years, unfortunately. But yeah, this was definitely uh, one that you know, I, as a kid growing up. I watched like your Mania Sevens and your Mania Eights like so much, and just you know he was such a big part of the programming then. Whether it was um you know Match of the Boss Man or you know Eight when he was part of the Flair drama with Savage, um he was always such a key cog in their programming, and you know I remember that very fondly as a kid. Right, and the, of course the Flair. I mean the Flair. Sorry, the uh, the perfect vignettes were just. I mean some of the best that they've ever done as far as those old school style of vignettes. Those were so good, and I just feel like he was like a beloved guy. Like he's one of those 
guys that I think connected on both a like hardcore wrestling fan level and like a mainstream level to a certain extent or like a casual wrestling fan level. But yeah, real sad. And it's weird because when I first started the pod in early Oh two, he's still in WWE and here we are a year later and he's gone. It's wild. Crazy. And he was such a Jack of all trades type of guy. You needed him to be a baby face. He was good. You him to be Healy was good. Hell, even as a commentator, I thought he was pretty good. So, um, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely a bummer to see him go. Right. And of, of course, um, whatever people say about Meltzer, I know, you know, I'm not saying I'm Mr. Pro Meltzer, but the uh, all these uh, obituaries he does are very well done. So if you ever if there's ever a wrestler that died in, um, during the Observer and you want to just get a good idea of their career, I mean, he goes into excruciating detail about these guys. So, yeah, very sad. And like you said, Mike, it's unfortunately not going to be the last one I'll cover in this era. Um, but. Um, we'll continue on another thing of wrestling history. The Dallas Sportatorium, which is one of the most legendary wrestling buildings in the country, is in the process of being torn down. The building hasn't been used in years, and they're taking the seating out of it before demolishing it. The 4,500-seat arena, known for its tremendous sight lines for wrestling, incredible sound, as well as for being a rundown dump in later years, as arenas become more modern, has wrestling weekly since the beginning of time. Dating back to the 50s, it was a regular Tuesday night stop on the Texas circuit. So the legendary Sportatorium, which I know it did have a reputation as being sort of a dump, but you, you're all these guys like, um, I know, uh, stone cold is very nostalgic about it when he talks about it, that it was just like this, it's about like pest and sweat, but it was just something amazing about it. So just kind of a legendary arena going down here. It's just, it just adds to this era being such a transition from more of the old guard of wrestling. You just see all these classic things kind of fading. Yeah, it's great. Like, the, I mean, I always thought the ruthless aggression tag for this was good because it really did kind of demonstrate the differential from like one generation to the other and how things change into like kind of more. I mean, I'm not saying that there wasn't a work rate error before, but they kind of had guys that came in that were more like physically imposing as opposed to mm-hmm. like, you know, your perfects and your rudes that, you know, were in really good shape, but they weren't like these monsters like your Brocks and your seniors, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so there are a couple WWE notes we have before we get to the shows. Um, uh, Hogan check. It appears the deal with Hogan WD has been ag- agreed through WrestleMania. At that point, both sides will reevaluate the situation, see where they want to go from there. Hogan may have signed a longer contract um, since last year's situation was somewhat similar and that Hogan signed a one-year deal. But at the time, nobody expected him to be a regular. Um, and it's possible they may want to keep him around just because, like, Essentially saying until his crowd pops die down, they'll probably just keep wanting to bring him in. So we'll see how long Hogan lasts. Um, and also on the Goldberg front, at this time it, it appears they are close there. They appear to not be close to a deal. Both sides are looking at the next week or two as something as an unofficial deadline. If they're looking to get something done for WrestleMania, of course they wouldn't. As noted, uh, both of his negotiations, it's just them trying to. Um, Goldberg, not a guy who particularly wants to work a whole lot. And I believe WWE is known for working guys to death. So a little bit at odds there. So, uh, we'll see. We know we will get Goldberg soon enough, but it, this has been going on. I, I never realized like how long the Goldberg stuff was to make. I mean, I've been reading about this since the fall. Like every time there's like a Goldberg update and they're just kind of at a, a stalemate. I, I'm waiting to see what is going to be the thing that makes Goldberg decide to come in. So. Uh, yeah, and Hogan signing his deal, and we'll see how long Hogan sticks around for. Yeah, I mean, Goldberg was really, like, kind of the guy that they almost waited too long on. Like, I feel like if he was mm-hmm. the guy that came over, I mean, he still had a 
you know, a little bit of an impactful run in WWE when he finally came in. But I mean, think of like him being in this era as you're watching it. Like he he could have been like such a larger than life star for WWE, like he was in WCW. Right. They they definitely them and the Goldbergs in this era, this situation. It reminds me of like a team that's unwilling to pay like the luxury tax in sports. When they yeah. could easily, like, if they brought in Goldberg, if you do Goldberg Stone Cold, I mean, you probably make Goldberg's contract like 10 times over with the buy rate for like a Goldberg Stone Cold match. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would have done as far as money. But I think it was them being almost like too, like, almost out overthinking it and trying to be like too financially shrewd, unfortunately yeah. for them. And like you said, by the time they do, it's maybe a little bit past would have would have been the best time. Yeah, like they did Brock and him, like you know, at the worst possible time, like that. They were mm-hmm. both out the door at that point. Imagine if that was done, like you know, a year or two earlier. Right. Like I can't imagine having to pay him so much that you couldn't have got it back for just all the dream matches you could have run. Like you, like you mentioned, like in this era where you still kind of have Austin and Rock and all these guys around more in there, not on the way out. They kind of pass each other by but we'll we'll get to the goldberg goldberg run later down i'm sure as a wcw fan um mike you were yeah i'm sure you loved what they did with goldberg yeah and that was honestly like part of what took me out of even being really interested Mm -hmm. in this era for a little bit is because you know obviously you know during the raw nitro wars like i was watching both and you know i was in the building the night fully run the title when the tides changed um so i mean i was definitely following both but like yeah for sure I, i leaned WCW and I feel like the way that they you know botched the invasion to an extent like just kind of really took me out of everything at that point you know because mm-hmm. it kind of was like my dream scenario and it kind of just all fell right. apart before it ever got started and like we'll see on this show with like Bischoff like it, it's a subtle thing I mean it's not like super ingrained in it but it's just something I feel like they never can escape like Vince can't escape we'll see what the interactions between he and Bischoff on this show but I definitely feel there's some like Still some residual, like, Monday Night Wars um, residue on their interactions, I'll put it that way. But um, So we'll get into the shows. We'll start with Raw. This will be the February 10th, 03 Raw. We are live in L.A. So um, uh, just to say, like, and this is something to mention, too, as we go through these Raws. Like, um, like this is a big town. Like, they're not in, you know, Hoboken or something. Like, this is L.A. So whatever they're putting out here, you would think that these shows are going to be, like, the best thing that they can put out. Like when you're running like L.A., Boston, these sort of things. Um, and we get it in, in memoriam for uh, Mr. Perfect, who we just spoke about. Um, but we get a recap to start this out of Vince, this entire saga of Vince's countdown for Eric that he's going to be fired because he's not done a good job. Uh, and Eric Bischoff comes out to address the crowd. He says that Vince is on the way and may fire him tonight. He has tried everything to sign Austin. He's gone to uh, bumfuck Texas. He's done everything he can, but at least he's back in L.A. with his people. So, of course, the crowd boos him for that, uh, does not go along with him. Um, but when he gets here, the crowd should tell Vince how well he's done. He demands the crowd support. As they boo him, he kind of turns on him and de- <laughs> starts berating them, saying that they need to uh, – uh, be on his side because there is people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at this point, after the crowd reaction, he becomes very unhinged. He walks over to the uh, commentary table and confronts JR, uh, blames him for not signing Austin, and pretty much puts all the blame on JR for this whole fiasco and saying that he could have done more. JR asserts that maybe it's because Eric fired Austin WCW and he hates his guts, and that's why. Um, and that 
sorry, that Eric said that Austin would amount to nothing, so maybe that's part of it. Eric says he deserved it, and maybe JR does. He deserves to be fired, and maybe JR does too, and fires him until he can get Austin to the show. Um, so, I don't know. I guess this was okay as a way to like shake up the show, at least give us something, because we know if JR is fired, he's not going to be at the commentary table, so they have to do something there. Um, I just haven't been super vested in the storyline. Like, it's just so obvious that they're bringing in Austin and they're just trying to kill time and milk it for all it's worth. But there's just no doubt that to me at this point, there's just, they can't drag it out this long and Austin not show up. And I mean, I get they're trying to build a storyline around it, but it's just not the most engaging. Um, the only thing I did like here um, quite a bit is I do like them at least bring up the WCW history with Eric Bischoff and the famous, like um, he like got fed FedEx to him, his um, rising uh his termination papers, whatever. Like, I like that. I think that could give some juice to this, something that's interesting by bringing Austin's WCW history. But again, just not, I don't know. Do you find this to be, as someone kind of jumping into it for this, uh, do you find this at all engaging, this whole, like, Eric getting fired thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of, like, the show long storyline when it makes sense. And I mm-hmm. feel like they did a pretty good job with it here. Um, almost too mm-hmm. much, but but they definitely, I mean, Everything made sense in this this side of the story, as we'll talk about it as the episode goes on. But um, I mean, there was definitely I liked that you had that like inside like you know dirt sheet look mm-hmm. at the Austin thing, and, and I thought that that was cool as like somebody that you know always like am, I'm like a dirt sheet guy through and through. So I liked that part right. of it, and I thought Jr.'s execution of this was great. Like he looked bummed, he looked sad, and and honestly, Lawler was awesome too because like Lawler was sitting mm-hmm. there like, oh wow, I have to do this show by myself now. Um, I thought that they both really excelled in their role here. I mean, as did Bischoff. I mean, Bischoff was so good working as a heel here, getting that crowd to hate him, you know, from day one or from minute one. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought everybody executed well on this spot for sure. Right. And we'll see that one of the downsides of this is they haven't been able to do much of a payoff if they're not going to have Austin on the show. And we'll see if they can actually – I agree. I'm a fan of the the show-long stuff. We'll see if they can bring this to some sort of – like interesting conclusion on this show because they've tried it like on the previous raw and they kind of just, it was kind of bait and switch. Like nothing really happened. Like Eric goes to Texas and he doesn't even find him. So, yeah. um, but we see that a, lim- a limo has arrived as JR walks off and it's evolution showing up and triple H trolls, Eric asking if he was waiting for someone else. Obviously he's waiting for Vince. So just setting this all in motion, Vince is going to be here. What is Eric's fate going to be after this whole uh, saga of him, um, fighting for his job. But with that, we go to our first match, which is going to be Test versus Christian, uh, building off the feud, the the recent feud between Test and uh, Jericho. Christian, of course, is um, Jericho's kind of lackey here, so sort of doing that whole trope, uh, feed him his underlings on the way to their match. But um, I was thinking through this, Mike, man, Stacy is a slim woman. <laughs> she looked like, when she came out here, she looked like she weighed all of about 75 pounds. She is a very thin lady. Yeah, and you could like really like tell like the difference difference between like the female wrestler and the female manager at this point, just in like body type. <laughs> right. Um yeah, the entire presentation of this intro was weird because obviously Christian like looked like a heel. And I mean me coming mm-hmm. in, like having not watched this at mm-hmm. all leading in, um, I'm like, Well, Test has to be a heel. I mean, when's when's Test been a good baby face? Um, but you know, obviously with Stacy it kinda you know, had him positioned as the baby face, but the crowd really didn't react to either of these guys um, when they came out. They obviously reacted to Stacy, um, like any locker right. room or any crowd would. But 
Um, yeah, Tess just seemed to be a guy that just was in a fortune spot to have a hot manager. Right. It could, it's possible, um, like, sunny energy going in here where maybe she's more over than him. But, yeah, I think in ring he's been okay. I think it's when he has to get the mic like we saw last week where he's not, you know, he's not the smoothest talker. So that kind of um, that kind of works against him. But we, yeah, we I also actually see, like Tess, too. Like, when... Like, 06, I was really, that was when I really started to get back into WWE, and I thought mm-hmm. that his work in, like, the rebooted ECW was, like, sneaky good. Um, so, I, I was, I appreciated seeing Test here, because, you know, not having watched this era much, and then kind of seeing him pop back up in my life in 06, um, it was cool to kind of see him, you know, with that, like, you know, kind of that look that he still had, even though he was a little bit more mm-hmm. shredded in 06, but. Right, the short hair and stuff, yeah. Um, but you mentioned earlier, King is solo for this, and he's nervous. Uh, he uses a, a, an opportunity to shill his book. He says that that's what JR would want, so he shills his autobiography. Uh, we start the match, they club away as Coach shows up in JR's spot, much to King's dismay. <laughs> um, he roasts him, saying that this isn't heat. Why is Coach here? Which I thought was a pretty good line. Um, Tess handles Christian pretty easily, though, after some clubbing and back and forth. Hits him with a press slam. Got some great elevation on that. Uh, Christian goes for the unprettier, and uh, Tess picks it up for a full Nelson slam and handles him pretty easy. Very squashy for this one. Just kind of a warm-up, like I said, feeding him, kind of feeding him Jericho's underling as a way to set up their match. Kind of classic, but nothing wrong with it. But the match itself, I just want one star. But I did think Tess looked good, which was the purpose of this match. Yeah, Christian did good job selling for him too. I thought he definitely did his job mm-hmm. in making Tess look like a like a rock star here. Um, and so after the uh, and after this, the uh, Christian hits the unprettier after the bell, then turns to Stacy. So um, kind of teasing that they're going to go after Stacy again. But to make the save, Jeff Hardy, who has recently been sort of a heel. Um, it could be maybe HBK's words have had some kind of effect on him and made him turn face again, but he kind of shows up as the uh, the uh, knight in shining armor to save ta- save Stacy from this um, this whole deal. So uh, I guess we'll see what they do with Jeff. They don't seem like they really know what they want to do with him. Uh, we'll find out later. But uh, what did you think of the uh, the match itself? Where'd you go on this uh, star writing wise? Yeah, I mean, I I would say like somewhere in like the one one and a half range. Um, I mean, right. they they worked hard given the time they had. They did fine. Um, I just hate and it's something that you know happened a lot in this era. Um, you know, the match ends and Test looks good, and then you know Christian immediately gets his heat back as soon as the match ends. So now Test doesn't look that good again. Um, it's just one of those things that annoys me in wrestling. You know, wins mm-hmm. a win, but then you got to make the guy that lost look better on the way out, even though he took the pin. And then he gets run off by Jeff Hardy, so nobody looks good in the end. Um, so that's where that that's kind of like you see a lot of it in, in this, you know, week of wrestling that we'll talk about. But um, that's definitely one one tro- wrestling trope that I'm not a fan of. And um, I wasn't too excited to see it here because, like you were saying, I, I thought Tesla good, but he's still looking up the, at the lights as the segment ends, you know. Right. It's a good point. And like we really the focus ends on Jeff Hardy, who's kind of been meandering and not doing a whole lot recently. So, yeah, it's uh, we'll see. It's it's sort of a contrived way to get to the match that they want to do with Jeff Hardy. But I'm with you. It kind of it's a squash. But the whole point of a squash should be to make Tess look good. But if he uh, if he's not the focus at the end, it's a bit strange. So I'm with you. 
Um, we we cut to Jr. backstage. He's on the line trying to get Austin. Um, he, uh, he he says about I feel like he said cell phone like eighteen times during this. Like call me on my cell phone. Make sure if you get Austin. Tell him to call me on my cell phone. My cell phone. Tell him to call me on my cell phone. Like he just it uh, it reminds me of that. Uh, is that a Drake song? I believe. With the yeah calling yeah and just uh, Jr.'s hotline bling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you said that because it definitely was like he looked very unnatural holding this thing like this piece of technology that he probably hated that even owns you know <laughs> right he just kept repeating that tell him, make sure you call tell him to call me on my cell phone my cell phone call me on my cell phone um so we'll see if he ever gets in contact we then find out that rob reiner's in the house uh, real random celebrity guest that was LA. so random so <laughs> random you know i figured that we would get celebrities in la um, but you know, for him to be the first one, I was like, oh, wow, that's not what that wouldn't have who I had on my bingo card for sure. Right. Like an O2, I mean, in like an O2, O3, early 2000s era, like, all right, who's hot in the early 2000s? Oh, Rob Reiner. <laughs> <This is so laughs> right. Right. Random. With his, with his kids, which I thought those were pretty young children for Rob Reiner. Um, I guess he had children late, but anyway, um, we get a recap then after we, uh, after a little uh, feature on Rob Reiner, a recap of the entire Book Dust saga uh, last week, including Goldust getting electrocuted in a very strange, um, strange segment. But uh, any any memories of Book Dust? I've been a bit. They've been one of the highlights of this entire pod, especially on Raw. I've really dug their run, even though it's coming to an end now. Any memories of Book Dust, uh, Mike? My my. So my biggest memory of Goldust during this time frame, like when it was live, is you know I was a big big Howard Stern fan. Um, actually still am to an extent. I just don't listen to him as much. This time frame, I listen to him, you know, multiple times a week. Um, just because in college it was just like something to do, you know. Um, and. Mm. You know, I remember when Goldust did a did a uh, interview on Stern, and he just kept on, you know, doing the stuttering gimmick. And I really right. like appreciated that they showed that like this was the week after the electrocution that led to that. So something that you can look forward to in future episodes when that kind of <laughs> right. starts to roll out. But that was the that was what really stood out to me. But I mean, this was anything I ever saw with these two guys, I enjoyed. I mean, they were. Booker T was always such a good character and, you know, he kind of, you know, make, uh, make everything work to his, to his, um, benefit. I mean, sometimes it might take him a little bit to get going and, you know, it was kind of weird, kind of like a campy situation to then be like thrust into a main event at mania, like a mania event level match at this mania. But I mean, he was definitely in a spot where he was doing everything he could to make this work and gold dust. Another one. He's just, I mean, just the fact that he ever got the Goldust character over shows that he was willing to play ball with anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I was very entertained by them and the parts that I saw with them. But it really just sticks back to me that that stuttering Goldust because of that stern interview. That was my real real life uh, memory of this for sure. Right. It's a good point because this sort of officially kicks off. How are we going to get from, you know, book dust breaking up to Booker T being in a title match at WrestleMania. Cause you know, this is leading. So, and it's, I mean, they still got a ways to mania, but it's really not that long. I mean, they're almost at no way out. He's got a, a couple months to see how are they going to make this work? So it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but he's going to start off. Um, he dedicates tonight's match to Goldie after his uh, horrific electrocution, which again, they are still selling. Well, we'll get to it in a minute. They talk about it during the match, but uh, Teddy Long comes out with D-Lo and claims that Goldust electro- electrocution was the best thing that could have happened to Booker, which is a brutal line. Like um, that Goldust was just holding him down and now the man has them fighting each other. 
Uh, and Booker T does not appreciate this and punches D'Lo to start off their match. So we kind of start off like that. D'Lo versus Booker T. We had a nice flurry from Booker right from the beginning. Booker's always good at these hot tags. And just anytime he gets like a flurry of offense, um, I think is real good. But uh, Coach says that Goldust has some some respiratory paralysis and they still have questions about his kidney. So you kind of alluded to where this is going, but it's just funny to me that how serious they're playing this in the, like when it actually happened, they're like, Oh, he still has a pulse. And now they're talking about these like really dire, serious sounding medical issues. Like, like they're playing it super straight. So to see where it's going to go. is kind of funny. Um, yeah, and even like when they replayed the segment, it was like so like so goofy the way that they played off the electrocution. Um, but yeah, I definitely still appreciate it. This is so, definitely something that you know these writers spent a lot of time spent trying to figure out best way to make this work for everybody involved. You know, right? Uh, but we get a we get a few shots from D'Lo, but Booker ends up winning this pretty handily with the scissors kick. Uh, which was an odd decision. I mean, this match was like, I don't know, two minutes or something. And Booker kind of squashed him. I mean, Dealer got a couple of shots in, but Booker came out with the flurry. He kills him down with the scissors kick. I ended up going another, just a star on this one too. I felt like this was another, like two for two, kind of um, almost like two squash matches to start off this show. But I thought it was odd because they've been trying to build like dealer has been undefeated since he got with Teddy and then, he just loses like he looks like a complete jobber in this match. It was strange and that got like they've been putting all this work into D'Lo just to have him go down. Like not saying I think he should win, but it's just odd. An odd person to pick for to be fed to Booker here. For sure. And when I saw this match starting, I was like excited. I'm like, oh, you know, give this thing five or six minutes. We'll be entertained by it. And then, you know, pretty abrupt ending. I mean, it's obviously, you know, you like we talked about like where Booker was headed at this point. This is kind of starting to push him that way i think into some quick wins um but i definitely wish that this got a couple more minutes just because i've always liked d'lo i thought that he mm-hmm. you know him and booker could have had a fun little match if they had a little bit more time here right you would think that maybe they would let d'lo like you if he's gonna lose like you say go a little longer at least make him look decent in this like look like he had a chance it's just it's odd. They've been pushing him so well. I can't say they're pushing him that hard, but they're trying to kind of rehab him. So it's it's an odd decision. But this yeah, felt quick, like I a just, match. <laughs> I'm sorry. This felt like a match that when they paced out the show at you know 7 p.m. They were like, hey, we got to cut four minutes from this because this is going to go long. You know what I mean? It just because you were saying like the way D'Lo was being built up at this point. Um, it just felt like this kind of was nonsensical and how quick it was and it felt like a, a casualty of of you know live tv spacing you know right so um but good one for booker to kind of start off his more his focus on more of a singles run all right we head back to eric bischoff in this continuing saga he tells chief morley to stay calm jericho comes in starts complaining about Tess getting to face him at no way out and he says that jeff hardy needs a lesson and then so uh, eric uh, it's kind of annoyed and gives him a match with Jeff Hardy tonight. And so we see the reasoning um, why we kind of had that odd Jeff Hardy run in. They're just trying to find a way where they could have Jericho and Jeff Hardy face off tonight, um, which could be a fun match. So kind of makes makes sense now, even if it didn't make sense. Why, why the hell would Jeff Hardy come out in that match? So there's why. Um, and uh, with that, we will head to our next match, which is going to be the um, – the newly redebuted Jazz coming back from injury in the past couple of weeks, and she's going to be facing Molly Holly. Uh, Jazz overpowers Molly despite her trying to use the agility. Um, she does like a, 
a wild like STF uh, move type of maneuver uh, Jazz does. Like it almost looked like a, like a cattle mutilation or something like that. It was kind of a reverse like cross face deal. It looked pretty badass. But uh, she tosses Molly around, grinds her down, and ends up winning with an STF. So again, Mike, like three for three here. It's like um, just like squash after squash, pretty much. Just a quick like Jazz wins pretty handily. Um, it's like I was starting to get like we're watching Superstars or something, like an old episode of Superstars because it's just like squash after squash, uh, just trying to get Jazz over. Um, so I just ended up going a star in this also. And um, what was your impression so far? As We haven't talked about it much, but how Coach was doing here on commentary also. I don't think he was bad. I mean, he was pretty pretty green at this point. And, I mean, Lawler, I thought Lawler was excellent. So that helped. Um, and, I mean, I thought that they played off a lot of, like, you know, JR thinking, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Lawler thinking he was an idiot. Um, and just them kind of going that route with it. There were definitely some times where Coach wasn't great, but I thought as a whole he held the show together for sure. Right. He kind of reminded me, like, very straight lace. He kind of reminded me of, like, when Scott Hudson showed up in WCW. Like, he, like, talks – he seems like he's talking super fast compared to JR, who kind of, of course, has his, like, Oklahoma drawl. And so yeah. I thought he was kind of – he definitely sounded like he sped up. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't, like, egregious. And he didn't seem like uh, – he seemed a bit nervous, but he didn't seem like he was lost for words ever. And I'm with you. You could tell King kind of changed his style, too. Like, he wasn't quite going his heel as he normally would, maybe. Like, didn't try the, um, I don't know. I felt like King kind of dialed back the heelish stuff a minute. and was just trying to help him along a bit. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't think he was. I thought he did fine also. But uh, any thoughts on this match? Just like another squash, huh? Yeah, I mean, Jazz looked good. Um, uh, it kind of it makes me think like somebody that covers like live act, like you know, current day wrestling. Um, it kind of makes me think about how like how much of an uproar um, you know the Twitter world would be in a day day and age now if a women's match got three minutes and was this one sided. <laughs> um, but but I mean, it was it was obviously a vehicle to get Jazz, you know, a big win. Um, you know, make her look awesome as you know her first return match. Um, and I mean, Molly Holly was such a good worker that, you know, she was kind of a perfect uh, opponent for Jazz here. Jazz did a lot of like, you know, like you were saying, like weird mat based submission things, but she looked mm-hmm. good. I mean, I was never a huge Jazz fan, but, um, you know, when she worked this style and she could be dominant, that's when she was at her best. So, um, you know, they it went like three minutes or so. And, you know, I didn't this is one that I didn't really need to see go longer um, because it kind of would have defeated the purpose of jazz's big return you know right and so yeah i'm with you it does seem like they're trying to get over more her like like you said all this matt based stuff like her working submissions are more more than just her being like um a lot of power offense like trying to work in the the holes and stuff and like her thing now too is that we do the post-match kind of beat down like she hammers molly after the match which is kind of her deal since her return where she just beats up people after the match but yeah, pretty straightforward stuff just to, um, to to kind of continue to build Jazz back up. All right, we then get a Howard Finkel cameo here. As he <laughs> he's backstage randomly, um, which is funny because he's not like the ring announcer on the show, but he's here, I guess, like doing Vince's laundry or something. I don't know, but he wants to know if Jr. has talked to Austin because um, he's all he seems to be talking to someone named Steve on the phone. But Jr. reveals that is only his buddy Steve from Oklahoma. So. JR still working the phone. 
but no yeah, dice. I thought that was clever. I thought that was clever with mm-hmm. Steve and and I mean, you, what I liked about this is you could see Fink kind of lurking in the background for like a good minute or two before he actually came into <laughs> frame, you know. Um, so I was like, all right, what's Fink up to back there? Like it almost like I, I was like, I hope he gets involved with the segment because if not, they uh, they probably should have recut this. But when he came in and he, you know, started eavesdropping, I thought that he was, you know, it was entertaining to see him pop into this for sure. Right. <laughs> Random Fink appearance. Can't complain. All right, but we uh, we carry on. We'll see if our next match could break the threshold of you know ninety seconds, unlike the first ones on this show. But because they've been very quick, but we're gonna get uh, RVD and Kane who have kind of reconciled after a bit of a uh, you know Bischoff and Morley trying to push them apart and whatnot. But they're gonna be facing three minute warning, and the crowd is super hot. The California crowd is really into Rob. I mean, he gets a huge reaction. Uh, he get, he goes in early, gets like his early stuff, his typical RVD offense, the unorthodox, educated feet. Uh, but they end up three minute warning, isolate him. And I feel like I'm a broken record with some of this stuff, but it's just it. I feel like some things as I watch this week to week don't change. Like three minute warning, like their offense just doesn't it doesn't pop for me. Like they don't come off as like monsters. Like they do a lot of just basic strikes, chokes on the ropes, just nothing really to make them feel imposing. Uh, but what they do do well, I thought, is bump. I thought they bumped pretty well for both RVD and Kane, like um, for big dudes. Uh, but, yeah, Kane comes in, he takes over, and, uh, yeah, he neutralizes him, gets Rob back in, and Rob comes in with the uh, the five-star frog splash to win. And, again, another pretty – I wouldn't say this was quite a squash because three-minute warning did get in for a minute, but you never really felt like they were much of a threat. Like, um yeah, and so just to get RVD and Kane, it seems like they had a, a lot of focus on this of trying to, like, reheat people or just kind of bring people along with these sort of short squashers-type matches. But I ended up going a star and a half just I thought there was a little bit more to this, but really just to make RVD and Kane look good, which uh, I thought they did. Yeah, I mean, most entertaining match of the night so far, for sure. Um, I mean, the Kane hot tag was, was pretty electric. Um, crowd was really good for this. Um, it was kind of like they, they, you know, finally getting to see some back and forth action. I mean, it was a pretty competitive match. I mean, as competitive a match as you're going to probably get in four minutes. Um, but, you know, it, it's, you know, it was kind of a competitive match in hyperspeed, you know. Um, I thought the five star was was really good. I mean, he went a long distance to hit that. Um, and I always was entertained by Rico. I thought he was kind of a, always a funny character for me. So um, I, I had a good time watching this match for sure. I w- wish this went a little bit longer, but it also didn't like, like, you know, really have to either. They kind of got their point across and, you know, three, three minute warning didn't look like great when all was said and done, but they got enough in that they didn't look like complete scrubs when it was done, you know? Right. It's a, it's one of those, like, it's always so hard to like the, what could have been with them because, when they came in, the when they were doing the beatdowns, they just so they look like they were going to be just monsters. And then I say it, I feel like every week I say it, they just kind of. I know there was some out of the ring stuff with them too that kind of derailed them, but it's just kind of a bummer because it's just not. It's also just not. A, I feel like a type of team you get a lot in this era is like just two monsters, and so I was kind of hoping for more from them, but it is what it is, I guess. But. uh VKM is in the building, which is what's important for us. Uh, he's surprised to see Jared in the parking lot, which I thought was a good little touch. Like, uh, kind of adds to him being pissed off about how Eric's running the show because, like, why would you not have Jar at the commentary booth? Like, it seems like a dumb decision. So I liked that Vince was kind of pissed about that right from the beginning. Uh, and he heads right down to the ring. He calls out Bischoff and Morley. Uh, he uh, he does a little joke where he ended, he 
pretends to inadvertently call the ramp the plank when he tells him to walk the plank. Uh, he comes right out of the gate and says that he should fire Morley, but he won't. The next match on uh, on Raw will involve Morley, and if he wins, he stays. If he loses, he's fired, and he's going to be facing the Dudleys in a handicap match. So stacking the odds against Morley, he uh, he then asks if they have signed Stone Cold. Eric says they have not, which Vince says is a shame because he loves to see him. He would love to see Eric try and control a rattlesnake in a like Austin. Uh, Eric did, kind of starts to beg. He desperately wants his job, so he tries to sway Vince with some HLA, which is random. He brings out these two uh, these two ladies, uh, and they come down to the ring. Now, here's the thing. he Eric then reveals that these are bisexual lesbians, which does not seem to make any sense. Like, So they're bisexual or they're lesbians. I don't think you could be a bisexual lesbian. Um Am I missing something here, Mike? Just, yeah, I mean, just the way to, <laughs> I, I was thinking about that, too, just the way to coerce them to, like, you know, coerce Vince to say, oh, you know, they're lesbians, but they're for you tight, buddy. Um, so, I mean, this was, the the line that, too, that I really liked was, um, you know, Vince saying he didn't really even want Bischoff to sign Austin because he hates him, but he was, you know, entertained. Mm-hmm. He, he was um, looking forward to seeing Bischoff try to, you know, control Austin, which he knew he wouldn't be able to. But yeah, I mean, as mm-hmm. soon as as he said the the hot lesbian action, I, I was I started laughing. I mean, this was this quickly became a classic Vince segment pretty much from that point on. Um, and you know, again, you know, me being the current current. Um, current wrestling guy i watched this on a saturday which is the saturday after the vince resigning um and <laughs> and it right. just like it was this was the microcosm of a vince segment that you know is it, just it, it speaks volumes to where you know the issues he's having in real life now and um it's just kind of funny the way that all of this worked out as something that i watched you know, the day after all this news broke, you know, it was kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they Bischoff was was great in this, you know, this portion of it. Like he's really stooping to the lowest level he can and try to keep his job. And, you know, knowing that Vince is who Vince is, he kind of thought that that was going to work for him. And it just didn't today. Um, but I mean, I thought Vince here was, you know, I'm all business tonight, ladies. I thought that he was pretty good there for sure. Right, and then he goes into it. He tells them that, yeah, like it's not the time or place, so uh, good for him, I guess. But and then next up, he says that he is. He tells Bischoff that you're fired, and he sings the him singing the na na na, hey hey goodbye. Like he sounds insane with that like Vince growl, na na na. So over the top, and it, it went like. It went so much longer than I thought it would. And like they cut away and they cut back to him and he's doing like the crazy strut as he's singing it. The, the crowd's strut. going ape shit. Um, I thought, I mean, the, this was probably the most entertaining five minutes of the entire, um, you know, four hour stretch I watched this week, you know, just because of seeing Vince like in that element. And my favorite Vince is when he does this wonky stuff and him singing and, you know, parading around. I mean, th- this is peak Vince right here for sure. Right, some good insane. Yeah, the strut was just so odd. Like he, he's such a, he moves so odd. He just like just in matches when he's doing this stuff. I don't know if it's just how he is or if he's doing. I mean, I know he's playing up a bit, but just the strut was just insane. He's like and so I always, cartoonish. Yeah, I always appreciate babyface Mister McMahon too because you know we always like 
think of him in the feud with Austin when he was like the mega heel. But when he turned it up to babyface, Mr. McMahon, it was always, you know, just as good and sometimes even more entertaining because he was so goofy with the crowd. And this kind of highlighted that. Right. So, so I thought the whole segment, like you said, the Vince stuff was um, was entertaining. But I, I'm at this point in the show, I was hoping like, OK, he's fired him, but we're only halfway through the show. There's I'm hoping we're leading to a bigger payoff than he just shows up and fires him. Because, again, I haven't like I don't really care that much if Eric gets fired, honestly, like I need it's just not that big of a deal to me. I need something more interesting than that. And we'll see how it plays out in the rest of the show. So that's where I was by the end of this segment. Because I knew we I knew we were hopefully getting more because why would they do it at the halfway point of the show? Yeah. And it kind of felt like to what I was saying before, like the from the beginning, it felt mm-hmm. like a show long story. And now it's like just over halfway through. So you kind of felt at that point, all right, there's got to be more coming for, you know, that that's going to, you know, whether we get a new GM or we figure out what the direction is for, you know, Austin at No Way Out. Because, I mean, at this point, you know, you, you watch wrestling long enough, you know, they're not teasing Austin to not mm-hmm. deliver him. So how are they going to now get to this with Bischoff out of the picture? Right. Right. And I think already on this show, compared to the previous ones, they're doing a good job. If you're not going to have Austin be on Raw, like I've, they're already making this a little more interest, well, a lot more interesting than what they have in previous weeks, where it just felt like they would say, uh, we're going to try and get Austin, but then nothing really entertaining. And I mean, Vince helps with that because he's just he's entertaining in the ring. But he quickly reveals this because uh, Regal and Storm, <laughs> which I love too, them being like such heel dickheads, like they immediately turn on Eric and Morley and start kissing Vince's ass, like after Eric gets fired, but he then reveals what the next beat of this is going to be, which is tonight he's going to name a new GM. So builds the intrigue for the rest of the show. Now Eric's fired. Who's going to be our new GM? So, and then we head on to our next match, which we heard a second ago is going to be the Dudleys versus Morley. And this includes Spike. So you have uh, Bubba, Devon, and uh, Spike going after Morley. I mean, it's a match, but it's honestly more of an angle and a segment. It's just them beating his ass for a good few minutes like they tear his shirt uh the crowd is kind of into it but uh i thought it didn't quite have the heat you were hoping for out uh, you know as far as like a heel authority figure getting his comeuppance like they were kind of into it uh but i guess because it was set up in a way because it wasn't very sudden they kind of set up a match to do it as opposed to it being on the spike but uh after a few minutes of beating they do the 3d and uh, presumably Morley is fired after this because if he loses, he gets fired. And then, of course, after the fact, they put him through the table and do the 3D through the table, which the crowd did pop pretty good for that. So just kind of basic stuff that Dudley's getting their, um, their revenge on Morley after he's been torturing for the past month. So, again, I, it's hard to even count this as much. as I, I just want to star on it, but I thought it was effective enough. The crowd liked it OK, even if it's probably not the greatest, like, heel, you know, getting their comeuppance you're ever going to see. Yeah, I thought Morley was really good in this show and the three mm-hmm. little parts he was in, like the backstage, like real low spoken voice. Um, but he, it, it, I thought that was good because he was like scared for his job at this point, you know, and, you know, the the moments with Jericho, I thought he was great. Um, I thought that he was you know, great in the, you know, kind of playing that um, shit, those guys falling on me type character when Vince is about to can him. 
Um, the big smile on his face. He doesn't can him just to then be disappointed by the fact he's got to face three guys. And he took this beating like a champ. Um, selling was great. The power bomb he takes through the table was just brutal. Um, he folded up like an accordion. Um, I thought I was very impressed with Morley and, and he was somebody that I wasn't a huge fan of outside of the Val Venus character when it first came through. Um, uh, but this was definitely good Morley, good, good chicken shit heel authority mm-hmm. figure. And, you know, kind of knowing what's coming next for him. And I thought he executed his role excellent here in, in all three segments he was in. You're right. Just credit. He did. He bumped his ass off. And it's like he really took a shit kicking in this with the uh, them tearing his shirt and everything. So, yep. So just kind of uh, the whole night so far is built around. The main focus is just Bischoff and Morley getting there. They're uh, just desserts for everything they've been doing. But uh, we did cut back to Eric. He's seething backstage, but he tries to save face with JR, pretty much knowing that JR is his only hope of uh, trying to salvage this in, in any way. JR is not buying it and tells him to go clean out his desk. So <laughs> I love how stoic JR is here. Like, he's not even like, you don't even yell at him or anything. He's just like, why don't you go clean out your desk? Yeah, it was so good. I, JR was was pretty excellent on this. Anything he did, he had good delivery as well. And for somebody that just got fired, like he didn't really have like that panic that you would have expected him to have. Probably because he kind of knew Bischoff was going to get screwed on the on the way out, anyways. Um, but I thought that JR was was excellent in this segment and really, you know, kind of immediately thwarted Bischoff's attempt to get back on his good side. Right. All right, and so with that, we'll head to our next match, which, uh, spoiler, it's going to be kind of another squash, but an odd one. So Tommy Dreamer's here based on, uh, you know, Evolution making a full of him last week. He's going to be facing Batista. He sneaks in uh, with the kendo stick for an early advantage. I guess it was no DQ. I don't know if they said it, but he's uh, hit. I guess it's before the match started, too. Maybe that's how they played it off. But uh, he starts hitting Batista with a kendo stick, but Flair quickly interferes. Uh, uh, Batista hits a power bomb and just pins him. So I thought this one was odd in that um, compared to the other ones we saw in the show and just the general idea of a squash. Like, I mean, I guess it just shows like the power and numbers of evolution, like with Flair interfering. But I thought maybe they should have let Batista show his stuff a little bit. Like he does the power bomb, but he really doesn't get to like throw uh, Dreamer around much, which I thought was an odd choice. But um, it just kind of, I guess they would rather put over evolutions kind of that they're always looking out for each other but i end up just going like a dud on this because to me it was barely even a match honestly yeah i agree and it felt like it was more important for them to save more time for the post-match angle that they did next than the actual match itself right and so booker runs in uh but the numbers catch up to him and all of uh evolution come out they hold him down as triple h clubs on him but here comes big papa pump for the save he cleans house but uh yeah, just kind of a paint by numbers thing to me. Like, it was just, you know, get Steiner out there. Like, it's just so clear that they're just, they're so ready to get to no way out and be past Steiner. Like, you see them already trying to transition the Booker. Like, they're just so over Steiner here, unfortunately for him. But, like I said, just real paint by numbers. Like, no real intensity to this. It just felt like they were going out there doing what they were supposed to do. Like, I guess, we're, like, they'd see like it had a ton of heat, especially the, um, the big Papa Pump stuff. Yeah, Booker T definitely seemed more over than Steiner was at this point, which, which mm-hmm. you know, obviously worked out, and that's probably was their plan. But it kind of sucks when you're, you know, oh, two weeks from a pay-per-view or, like, a week and a half from the mm-hmm. pay-per-view, whatever they were at this point. And Steiner just comes running out, and then they, they um, you know, Booker T just – Booker T, Triple H seemed like 
the match everybody wanted to see more so than Steiner at this point. And it's kind of good booking because that's where they ended up having to get to anyways. But Steiner just seemed like such a wet noodle at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it just seems so obvious to which it just makes you think more why they even bothered bringing it back for the pay-per-view, but for no way out. But it's just, yeah, it just seems so dead in the water. Like you can tell that they're just over it. They're they're even ready to move on. So it makes for kind of some awkward moments like this, but yeah, it kind of, it served this purpose, but it's nothing really too memorable. Uh, we see Jeff Hardy backstage. He gives Sean a nod after Sean gave him that little pep talk, I guess you could say last week. And then we hit to uh, Stacy and Tess, who are discussing uh, Tess's current status. Stacy says she has a nice promotional um, opportunity for him because she has put, booked him with something called GGW. She doesn't really say what that is, but she says that it will um, give him some great exposure. Get it, Mike? Exposure. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Weird, weird <laughs> segment, I thought. Um, <laughs> right. Tess didn't sell this well at all, um, which is like, like that's when it's like, as I'm watching this, I'm like, is Tess a baby face? Like, it just, he's not giving, like, a positive reaction to anything. He doesn't seem excited by this when, you know, obviously they don't know what the company is, but he feels like, I feel like he should have had a little bit more excitement and thankfulness and it just seemed like he was kind of there. Like he was just a guy there and it didn't really seem to be playing his character at all. Right. It's a very odd thing where like, it's almost like his character, he's trying to do almost like a Brock thing where he's just like this big beast or something. But then he's in these kind of semi comedic things with Stacy where with the testicles, everything. And I just don't know if it plays to his strengths or if he really has the like flexibility or the range to kind of, toe that line so that he ends up like you said in these awkward thing right he's constantly trying to act tough and then it's supposed to be kind of funny and he's just yeah it just it ends up being kind of awkward like you mentioned yeah it's <laughs> but, a bad um, mix like like stacy's good and obviously on paper these two seem like they would work better than they they seem to be doing on camera you know right um so that we we um we then go to Eric, who's cleaning out his office, which I thought was funny considering his office changes weekly. Like, it's not like they're in this arena every week. but So they set up his office <laughs> like an hour ago for him to take it down. But the Dudleys confront him. He tries to kiss their ass, and they just give him the na-na-na. So, again, just more kind of uh, trying to milk the whole, uh, you know, making fun of Eric that he got fired, et cetera, for all, like everybody who he's kind of been torturing which is honestly not a whole lot of people, really. The Dudleys, mainly. Yeah, I mean, they Bischoff... They love this song, don't they? Yeah, Sorry. Bischoff... Oh, they definitely did. I mean, he say, sang it twice. Uh, they didn't know what else to sing to him, right? B- Bischoff was just so... Like, he seemed like he was in every segment of the show at this point. It was mm-hmm. kind of like they could have... They didn't have to do that here because, you know, I, I will talk about it in a minute. They end up coming back to Bischoff later. But this one is when it's like, all right, this... I feel like this one or two minutes could have been used for like a vignette for somebody or like an interview with like Jeff Hardy or something. It just didn't seem like we needed to go to this point here. And, and obviously, yeah, the, he had been torturing the Dudleys for a while, but the Dudleys already got their revenge tonight. You know what I mean? Well, they didn't have to go back to this segment and, and it just felt like overkill. Right. And it's something I've noticed in this era too. It's kind of like after, like Hogan left, they were constantly trying to chase like who's going to be the next Hogan because that's like was their most successful time. It's kind of like that in this era where they're like chasing that Vince Austin like authority figure thing and they're trying to redo it with Bischoff. And it just 
like it's hard to recreate something that was so good. Like it's never going to be as good as the Austin stuff. And so like you could tell why they do it because like, well, I mean, we're so successful with that formula before and Bischoff's a big name. Like why can't we do it? And so they pack it in these shows and like focus so heavy on it, but I don't think it's really landing. Like you said, it's a bit of overkill because it's just not on the same level, but, um, but uh, Billy Gibbons is, is here, as they see. So our celebrity count in L.A. is uh, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top and um, and uh, Rob Reiner. So all the hot celebs of 2003 are here, uh, Mike. Yeah, it's like if, if these are going to be your celebs, then you should just pretend you don't have any celebs. Because it's like, where are the real ones? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, anyway, but we're going to get to a match that was set up earlier. It's going to be Jericho versus Jeff Hardy. Um so, uh, so I thought Hardy started off uh, pretty hot and decently focused. He has a nice little flurry uh, for the beginning, but uh, Coach, as he's as the match starts off, Coach and King speculate about who's going to be the new GM, kind of um, like uh, just building intrigue for the possible payoff later. But um, Jericho, I thought, made Jeff look really good in this match. Jeff's kind of been meandering, but I thought he made all Jeff's offense look really good. Um, yeah, Coach accidentally, like, shoots on Jeff Hardy in this. Like, uh, he's like, yeah, I know that Jeff's got his issues, which they never really talk about on the show itself. Like, you know, if you're in the know, you kind of know that's part of the deal with Jeff, but they don't usually mention it. So I thought it was a little like <laughs> Coach uh, – Talking tell and tales out of school here. Which was yeah, funny. it <laughs> seemed like he was like he kind of like ate his own words when he said that too. It was strange. Right, he's almost like fuck my first night. I should probably not be uh, making veiled shoot comments. But Jericho takes over with a nice top rope underhook suplex. I thought looked real nice. Um, nice near fall, Jeff. They go into the walls and uh, Jericho. I'm uh, sorry, Jeff reverses into a roll up. Uh, Jericho continues to grind him until Jeff works at his comeback. Jericho cuts him off again. Um, Jeff hits the whisper in the wind and finally he catches him in the walls. And Jeff, but Jeff gets the rope. So really fight a lot of um, Jeff really fighting valiantly in this one. I thought I thought he played a really good face. He goes, he hits the Swanton, but Jericho gets the ropes on the pin. So a good near fall that. And at this point, the crowd is really feeling it. And, um, but Jericho hooks back into the walls and Jeff just can't escape. He's in the middle of the ring. So he taps, but, uh, this is definitely like the best showing for Jeff Hardy in months. Like really, man, I would say probably since summer of Oh, two for him. I mean, he got some time, like they didn't just send them out there in a random match for five minutes. And I thought Jericho did just an excellent job of like structuring this match. Um, I mean, he made himself look good, but I think he he knew how to put this match together around like Jeff's strengths, like working as kind of like this underdog baby face. And then Jeff could come in and like nail his high spots and pop the crowd. And as it built, like the crowd got more and more into it when the crowd is really not giving a shit about Jeff in months. So um, I really give, I mean, credit to Jeff, but I thought Jericho was just masterful on this, just the way he kind of guided this match along. But uh, yeah, it just reminded me of the Jeff that like the reason people like Jeff Hardy, like he's like this, he hits these cool spots. He's like a, an underdog face and uh, fighting from underneath. And I thought they told that story really well in this. So I ended up going three, three stars in this. I really enjoyed this match and um, credit to Jericho and Jeff from, um, giving him like Jeff, like I said, his best match in a very long time. Yeah. I had the similar range, like three, three and a half, three and a quarter or so. Um, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, it took him a little couple minutes to get going. Um, I thought the last like four or five minutes of this was, mm-hmm. was awesome. Um, and they, they really crammed a lot in and, 
it's one of those matches that, you know, I, when I looked at how long it was after I, after I watched the match and it was like just over 10 minutes, it felt longer. And sometimes you say that about a match because it overstays its welcome. But in this, it felt like a match that was longer because they got a lot of shit in, in that 10 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. The last, I thought that the finishing sequence when he goes to the Hurricane Runner and Jericho catches it and, and locks in the walls, I thought that that was awesome. Um, really good uh, whisper in the wind for two. Um, the the Swanton for two. They they really did a good job. And I mean, me not really knowing who they're pushing at this point, um, I was invested in this match, not knowing who was going to get the win. I actually assumed Jeff was just because of him doing the runoff earlier. Um, but then obviously, once I did a little dig and Jericho made the most sense. But yeah, I mean, this was. As somebody that was watching this, not really, you know, having followed the product, it was an entertaining match, and I really didn't know who was going to win as they they came to their climax, and it felt very good. I mean, Jericho is somebody that, you know, can have a good match with every anybody, and and Jeff when he's on is the same way, and it took him a little bit to get their feet wet, but once they did, I thought they had a really good match, and and if this was, you know, a pay per view match, and they were able to add another four or five minutes of it, maybe this gets into like a like a four range even. Um, they were mm-hmm. clean. There was nothing that was sloppy about it, and you know, easily the best work of the night for sure. Mm-hmm. Jericho is like low key in this. Like he's really he's not like in the main event pitch or anything. But on these TV matches, anytime they give him about like ten or twelve minutes or so, like you know, in that you know more than just a short like a quick little match, he really knows how to put things together. Because I can remember him having like when Hogan was still on TV, he had a good like SmackDown main event with Hogan. Like if you give him somebody. Like he could, even if like he kind of has to carry it, like he's low key, a very good TV worker in this. I mean, obviously he's, I mean, he's Chris Jericho. He's very good, but he's just kind of like, I don't know if there's an area you really remember him because he's not really on top, but he kind of kills it in these undercard matches on TV. It's kind of a workhorse for them. Great guy to have on the roster at this point. I mean, he, mm-hmm. you watch like all the other guys that were on that winning matches here. Jericho could slot into a match with them, no problem, and then have the best match of the night. So, yeah, definitely, you know, was excited when I saw that this was a match on the show just to kind of see where they both were at this point. And, you know, it definitely delivered. It didn't disappoint me when we were watching it. Very good. All right. We will go now to our, our main event segment, I guess we'll say here, which is going to be uh, Vince coming out to address the situation. Uh, but backstage, he meets with Evolution. He um, they, uh, brag about hanging out with the bisexual lesbians. But Vince, so Vince kind of playing babyface here on Rock because he gives um, Evolution something they don't necessarily want, which is a match next week. It's going to be Triple H and Batista versus Steiner and Booker. So uh, interesting match there as it's going to be uh, Triple H's <laughs> opponent at the pay-per-view and his, uh, his next feud. They're kind of, again, just... They're just chomping at the bit to move on from Steiner. They're already trying to insert Booker in this, which is kind of funny. Yeah, and um, and they kind of kind of what we were saying before, like, the kind of playing off the preparation for Mania, even though we're at No Way Out. Um, and you know, I'm th- I'm already thinking about that. Like that's got to be a screwy finish or something because I can't see any of those guys getting beat uh, based on the path that they have. I I figured this is a spot maybe Flair would be in to eat the pin, you know, but um, Batista. Right. Triple H, Booker T, that, that kind of makes me want to watch that now so I can see how they finish that. Um, and that's something that you can look forward to next time you, you talk about this stuff. Right. All right, so we have Vince coming out to announce the new GM. But before he can say much of anything, here comes JR walking down the aisle. 
Um, and Vince tells the crowd, it's, the crowd pops thinking JR is going to be GM, but Vince quickly shuts that down, saying it's not going to be him. And then here comes Eric, too. And uh, they come out and announce that they can guarantee that Austin will be at No Way Out. Um, so Vince decides, all right, well, I guess JR could be reinstated. And uh, I guess the new GM could be the old GM, which is Bischoff. But he does say that Bischoff said he would do anything. And, uh, of course, they teased the Kiss My Ass Club to the point where Vince even pulls his ass out. Um, and this is what I was mentioning earlier. Like, still, this is 100%. I mean, they don't go through with it because Eric says he won't do it. But this is, they're teasing. This is some Vince, like, I beat WCW, like, masturbatory shit, as always. Like, just can't let it go, even though they don't actually get Eric to do it. But anyway, um, instead, he's not going to do the, um, if he doesn't want to kiss Vince's ass, he can get his ass kicked. So at no way out, he will face Stone Cold Steve Austin. So that is our payoff. And it's going to be Eric versus Austin at no way out, which I got to say, I'm skeptical. Like I said, this has not been my favorite storyline, but I think this is a good enough payoff. And I think there's intrigue there, even though we're probably not going to get Austin the build, which is a bummer. I think if you really wanted to do like Stone Cold versus Bischoff, you'd want more Stone Cold. But I think it's interesting enough for like a uh, like a transition pay-per-view, like a secondary pay-per-view, just because the built-in history between these two and et cetera, et cetera. So I was satisfied with this payoff, Mike. Yeah, and it's a good match to have as like an angle before WrestleMania, you know, so then kind of figure out what you're going to do leading into Mania. Uh, I mean, just going back to this, back to what I was saying with Vince earlier, like watching this the day after Vince retired, um, Vince bare ass in the middle of the ring with his uh, tan lined ass for what felt like forever. <laughs> um, it just was like, oh, this is just another microcosm of the great Vince McMahon. Um, and right. just the way he's sitting there and he's like, you know, my favorite line here was, you know, if you if you don't kiss it soon, it does tricks. It's going to my ass does tricks. Uh, just at, again, Vince, super entertaining and Bischoff was great. Like he was ready to do it and he just couldn't pull the trigger. Um, and then he probably regretted that once he found out what he had to do. Uh, but yeah, this was totally, uh, you know, this is the, my, my comeback for you for, you know, kicking my ass and with Nitro for a couple of years. Um, I'm, you know, just the fact he's, he's dangling his ass in the breeze in front of Bischoff. And it, it was, it was enter- so entertaining and Bischoff was great. Um, you know, the payoff makes a lot of sense when you're thinking about where they went from, you know, the start of this show. Um, and you know, overall I thought that they did a pretty good job tying everything together. Right. And so, yeah, so that's how we end the show. I agree. I thought it was a solid payoff and, um, so we get to our overall thoughts on Raw and rated out of 10. I thought the Vince stuff, definitely having Vince show up, gave this some juice and actually pushing it forward to know where we're going to go, that Austin's going to be at No Way Out, even when we, I mean, we knew he would be, but what's he going to do? He's going to face Bischoff. So we kind of, I thought in just Vince's presence, his like insanity, I think just brings a little bit of extra compared to how lifeless the show was the week before this. And also we got that we kind of worked as our de facto main event because it was the last match on the show. And really the only match that got any kind of time. I thought Jericho Jeff was a, a pretty good match. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it was any great shakes, but um, I do think, you know, at least the show, show long angle went somewhere. I mean, in ring, not the most, you know, besides Jeff and Jericho, really nothing you're going to, Nothing too memorable. So I ended up going four and a half out of 10, which, you know, is still a bit below average, but compared to last week is a huge step up. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, right of five. I was thinking like five, five and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Really thought that that match, I mean, Jer- without Jericho and Hardy, it would have been impossible to get probably above a four, but that match was good. Um, and, you know, the way that the McMahon stuff, McMahon-Bischoff stuff, you know, went from the beginning to end, um, and it all had logical storytelling. And, you know, even the even the advancements with, you know, Booker T, like I feel like that, you know, this was kind of the start of the push towards Mania with him. Um, and overall, like everything else made sense. Like Morley was ousted in an entertaining manner. Um, everybody that needed to win did and looked good in doing so. So, you know, while not aesthetically pleasing and, you know, bell to bell, um, they did get a lot accomplished in the, in the two hour time frame. And, and yeah, I think at saying five, five and a half in 2003, mm-hmm. it probably puts it in one of the higher tiers of raw, right? <laughs> like again, I would four and a half. And, and that's like a, a good jump from last week, which is just a, the show just it, like it had some life to it. It felt like things were happening. It didn't feel like a complete waste, but you definitely get the sense that like if they can get past No Way Out, they might be able to get some better momentum. They're just like it, it just seems like they're sort of in a, a holding pattern a bit, and they can really like they're. I feel like they're ready to crank up with Evolution and get them going and stuff, but they need to get past this pay per view. So. Um, but we will now head to SmackDown. So it's going to be the February 13th, 03 SmackDown. We are live from Bakersfield, California, and we find out we have another uh, giant wooden box. So um, since I don't think you watched the last one, uh, Mike, so this has been a, the second week in a row we have Heyman dangling a giant box from an enormous crane as some kind of mind game with The Undertaker, just to fill you in. So many, yes. That, that, that crane took up an enormous amount of uh, seating. Um, for what seemed like a pretty hot crowd. And this was, um, was this when they were taping SmackDown on Tuesdays and go live on Thursday? Or not go live, but uh, the show on Thursday? They weren't live, Correct, right? yep. Okay. Yep, tape for sure. Yep, 100% tape. So, yes. So, uh, yeah, we, we speculated last on the last episode, but it could not have been cheap to get that enormous crane. I mean, that is not a small piece of equipment. No, so. or even the box. Like that's that's not something <laughs> right. that you just throw together, you know. And and you get in a town to town, you probably had to make a new one, right? Um, you're you're not, right. you know, hopping that thing on on the uh, the company jet going city to city, right? <laughs> right. Um, but we'll save the box for later, as is typical in SmackDown. We'll start off with the match. It's going to be Edge versus Charlie Haas and the ongoing uh, conflict between Team Angle and the stars of SmackDown. So I. Uh, yeah, I won't go move for move on this one, but it was good stuff. I mean, it's just like they kind of work where Haas is just trying to stay ahead. He's like trying to ground Edge with all his kind of amateur wrestling maneuvers, the mat wrestling, but Edge keeps flying back with some explosive offense. And I think that really plays to to Edge's strengths. Like he comes in and like just his help spots are really good. And like eventually he's just kind of overwhelming. Uh, Edge starts to overwhelm him. But uh, Heyman gets on the apron, causes a bit of a distraction. He ends up getting speared, but in the in the fracas, Haas is able to go in and steal it with a roll-up. But uh, just a good physical match. And, and again, it shows you – I keep saying this every week, but, I, well, you know, this show's going to show it also, just how much faith they have in these guys. They're doing a really awesome job of getting Team Angle over, like right from the get-go. Like having him beat Edge, I know it's like kind of a – a schmozzy win and he has the Heyman interference, but it's still a big win. Like, and he didn't, it didn't look like he really, like he held his own, the match in this really good physical match with the stars of SmackDown, just good stuff. I ended up going two and three quarter on it, a good opener and continues to show that like team angle are legit. 
Yeah, entertaining opener. I felt like my my guard was up with some of these roll ups because of how quick every match on Raw seemed. Um, and I was <laughs> right. then like, you know, the work rate here was was definitely strong. Um, kind of kind of didn't like the finish. Um, I mean, obviously it played off Paul, but kind of did just you know it wasn't the strongest finish and kind of kind of hit the pin out of nowhere after that. Um, and again, it's, that's what I was preparing myself for. And then when it happened, I didn't like it. So, um, I mean, I'm a big edge, I'm a big edge guy. So that's, that's probably why I didn't like it, but I always like Charlie Haas. And, and I think this is a match that like just was getting going and just starting to hit its gear when it ended. So that was where my disappointment was. I mean, add another two, three minutes of this, you're probably in the threes, but yeah, I'd probably say like two and a quarter, something in that range. Yeah. It, it was a strange I, I get what you're saying because it was odd because I feel like Paul wasn't really on the apron long enough to really it wasn't really a distraction. It was almost like he just ate the spear. Like even if he wouldn't have been there, they could have done the same thing. So I get what you mean. It kinda it's like you almost want Heyman to do more to cost edge the match. But uh, I guess they just wanted the spot of Heyman getting speared. Yeah, and I mean it did make Haas look good. I mean, just getting the win over Edge, I mean, that's obviously what they were which we'll get into later. That's obviously was a, another like story long thing that they were trying to get done in this week. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I thought that the ending was flat and, you know, they were really kind of moving up from like, you know, first to second year when they got to the finish. And I, you know, I think it had another gear to go to from there. So that was my only disappointment with it, but the work they did was good. So I, I can't really complain after watching raw, I'll take a five and a half minute match all day. Right. Um, all right, so we continue on, and uh, Colin Taz tells us that in a coup, um, Stephanie has been able to sign Nathan Jones to SmackDown. They'll have an exclusive interview with him next week, so we've been seeing a lot of these vignettes that have been well done for Nathan Jones, so we'll get our first look at him uh, next week. I don't know, any, uh, any, uh, <laughs> any, what do you call that, like, uh, associations with that you would think of with Nathan Jones, Mike? <laughs> my my only association with Nathan Jones is the fact that he was uh, a member of the WrestleMania streak for Taker. Um, and somebody that I feel like just as somebody that didn't watch this era, you look back at that and you're like, what the hell? How did this happen with when he was involved in a, in a Mania match with Taker? And, you know, obviously we, we you know, they, they to build somebody up, that was what a lot of what this uh, – this like you know he was really more of a corner man to like a train and big show but it kind of was you know a way to try to get him to a next level by putting him in that league and it just never actually happened for him um but big guy i mean impressive looking dude um just kind of never worked out yeah oh i'm looking for the chronicling how how and when it all crashes and burns which seems to be soon so we'll 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 cover it. Uh, but we go to, to Angle, who compliments Stephanie in her office on her new uh, – she has some bangs rocking. So he says he likes her hair. He gives her a rose, and he goes for a V-Day smooch. So Angle's feeling himself tonight. But Brock barges in. Steph uh, then announces uh, a match that she was trying to tell Kurt about while he was trying to uh, to <laughs> seduce her. She says that at No Way Out, it will be a six-man team Angle versus Brock, Benoit, and Edge. Um Brock then says all this stuff about like, oh, you like that, Kurt? He says Kurt's name like nine times. Like, uh, hey, Kurt, how do you feel about that, Kurt? Uh, but then he says he's going to make an example of, of that rapper Cena night. He invites Angle ringside to watch as he destroys Cena. But uh, I have to say this is – it's something they go back to a lot. But I kind of – it's one of these tropes I've always loved, like the six-man match 
uh, like for a transition pay-per-view, like, you know, it's something they, they've come back to quite a few times throughout history, but I don't mind it, especially when you have guys who are all over like this and like, you know, the match is probably going to be pretty damn good. So I don't really mind this. And that's kind of the route they're going. It's like a holdover for Brock and Carded Mania. So I'm kind of digging this with considering everyone involved and how well they've brought along Team Angle to make them feel like they can hang with these guys. Yeah, and just the, the fact that that match got announced like immediately made me feel better about Edge's eating that pin um, because then, obviously, that's you know something that they were doing to set that six-man up. So, I mean, that six-man sounds amazing on paper. So um, mm-hmm. that's definitely something I'm probably going to go back and watch now. So, um, right. I mean, Brock... I love seeing this era Brock because like, obviously we see like, uh, you know, I cover this, this era Brock, like real, real time era Brock, 2020, 2022 Brock a lot. Um, And this guy was just, you know, so much more raw, but just like almost equally as entertaining because he Mm -hmm. always had that demeanor of he's going to beat the shit out of anybody at any time. And him and angle is just such a beautiful, perfect matchup. And, Anytime that these two interacted was gold. So uh, it was cool to see this with Stephanie involved, our current CEO, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree. Brock just has this. It, it, we'll get to it later. I think he, in a, you know, where he comes in later in his senior match. But he just has this like intensity that I think some guys try and fake that it's just like innate in him that you just can't like force yourself to do it. I think it's just who he is as a person that I think just anything he does it just kind of comes through it's like he doesn't have to act intense he just is really intense as a human being yeah and that angle is the same way like he mm-hmm. anything angle does works he would always get engulfed in the character and and these two were just perfect for each other at this time frame because angle had the experience brock didn't so i mean i credit so much of what brock became in wrestling to the feuds with angle um and you know brock was just i mean it Brock has always been someone that you you perk up when he's on your TV screen. That's never going to change. Uh, and, you know, even back at this point when he was still a newbie, um, he was still part of that, you know. Um, and Angle is the same way. And Angle in his prime, there's not many that are better. So, um, if any, in reality. So, um, awesome. You know, just made me just want to go through and see everything that these two do on the road to their Mania match. Very good. All right, Rikishi heads down for a rematch from last week with Nunzio. Um, Nunzio made a, a ominous threat to him, saying that he doesn't know who he messed with, and uh, and this is where he shows what he's talking about because um, uh, Chuck Palumbo and Giant the Bull jump Rikishi, and uh, Nunzio joins them. Uh, they hold him as Nunzio uh, says, "We're family," and then he kisses Rikishi on the lips, and Taz lets us know that where he's from, the kiss means something very bad. But uh, I thought it was a good beatdown, good. Um, reveal of Nunzio's crew here with Palumbo and Johnny the Bull. Uh, you know, why not? Uh, those guys were not doing jack shit, so let them have this stable with Nunzio. I mean, I can't hurt anything. I thought this was a pretty good way to debut them. I thought they looked legit. And uh, I like Nunzio's intensity when he said, the like, we're family and all that. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, this would be 03. Sopranos was in full, full effect at this point, so uh, I could see maybe why they wanted to capitalize. Yeah, and I mean, Nunzio, Little Guido was always such a good chicken shit heel. Um, you know, this would be a good way on paper to get two bigger guys over um, because you can have mm-hmm. Nunzio do the legwork and, you know, kind of carry everything while they look like studs beating the shit out of bigger guys. And 
You know, Rikishi sold really well here. It wasn't an entertaining segment. It was something that as soon as I see, like, okay, Rikishi and, and little Guido to me, it's like, okay, this is something I don't need to watch. Uh, but then <laughs> right. as I'm watching it, I'm like, it's kind of entertaining. Um, Chuck Palumbo, to me, I remember more as the biker Chuck Palumbo. Um, so it was cool to see him in this means. And, you know, there's just – there's so many of those, like, younger, like, upstart big guys of this era – um, and it's funny to see, like, you know, as we were just talking about Brock, the ones that made it and the ones that didn't. Um, and, you know, but they tried. And, I mean, th- this was definitely an attempt to put a, a cool heel stable together that, like you were saying, plays off, you know, what was hot at that time in the Sopranos. And, you know, Rikishi, again, Rikishi was over. He was popular. So it was a good foil to this. And and I think that, you know, this is something that obviously didn't have long-term success, but, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I like the I like the direction they had when they put it together. Yeah, I thought they looked decent. I like they didn't look like a bunch of idiots or something. Like they look, they came in, they look like badasses, and we'll see where it goes. A for effort, put it that way. Um, we continue now where we have uh, Matt Hardy is going to be facing Ray. Ray is not had a whole lot of he hasn't had any specific feud going on, but he's just coming in week out. Uh, week after week since his injury and just putting on great TV matches as Ray does. But uh, Matt's whole deal right now is that he wants to um, fight in the cruiserweight division to take the title from Kidman. Uh, our Matt facts of the night are is that he always gets more Valentine's than his brother and that he doesn't f- send flowers, only chocolate. Um, that was a nice touch to having uh, Tony Chimmel has to correct Matt's weight. He announces him at like 230 and then he has to correct it to 222 to reflect the weight that Matt has lost in the past week. Um, he's wearing like one of those, uh, looks like a garbage bag, but it's like one of those sweatsuit things that people wear to try and like cut weight or like, um, you know, lose weight. Taz says that Matt bought a bicycle, the sidecar for Shannon Moore to, uh, to just really all these good little lines about, uh, Matt trying to lose weight for this, um, cruiserweight gimmick. Um, but anyway, regardless, he's going to be facing, if he can make weight, at um at no way out he'll face Kidman for the title so we know where he's what the storyline's going to be the next few weeks but the uh this match I enjoyed quite a bit uh great Ray Flurry as usual frying off the drop kicks and the Ronas and stuff for the beginning Shannon gets some cheap shots on the outside after Ray misses a dive um and Matt goes is all over Ray after that drops him on the ropes works the back does a bow and arrow whips out a torture rack, uh, which Ray then reverses into a bulldog, which I thought looked awesome. Great impact on that. Just these guys were firing off some moves in this, like, um, like, um, uh, big springboard dive by Ray. He hits a split leg moonsault with the, the velocity on which Ray hits that, uh, split leg moonsault is insane. The snap he has on is just absolutely incredible but furious pace they're just going back and forth matt ends up they start working towards the end of this match like the whole idea that matt's winded because he's wearing the you know this is not his weight division and he's wearing this stupid garbage bag suit thing so like he's getting blown up he falls on the ropes in the 619 position ray hits the 619 and then the west coast pop so um we'll get to what he says after the fact but i thought this is great action I like the way that they integrated the weight loss gimmick into the finish that he's like, uh, he's winded because he's not used to this and because he's sweating more than he should just the perfect heel storyline. I think for this Matt Hardy character and Ray's just an absolute stud. He just looks like a million bucks in this. So well done. This is, I ended up going three on this. I thought this was a, a really awesome TV match. Really creative finish. Um, I, I thought mm-hmm. that, I mean, I'm 
by admittedly, um, I hate Matt Hardy. I always have, but version one Matt Hardy was he had a special charisma to version one Matt Hardy, um, and I thought that Shan, him and Shannon Moore worked well together. Um, and you know, just the way that he was playing up, he did a really good job playing up the role that he was supposed to hear with like the dehydration thing. Um, you know, continuously like kind of selling when he shouldn't have to kind of play it up and kind of gear you up for the finish that was coming. I thought he did an excellent job with that. And you're right. Ray looked amazing. Um, this was this time frame to me was when Ray was at his absolute best because he was a little bit bigger than he was in his WCW days. So he looked more legit. And then obviously, as mm-hmm. they pushed him along and, you know, it still took him a little while to get to the top, but you were starting to see him push through to that next level. Um, and this was definitely what I saw from Ray. I'm like, you're watching this guy and he looks like he's ready to main event tomorrow. And um, the size doesn't seem to even matter at this point. So thought they did a really good job. I thought Matt's, um, you know, attempt to twist of fate that was reversed into the, um, you know, attempt for the Rana um, was really good. Um, and then right into the finish from there with the collapsing into the 619. I thought that was awesome. Um, really, really creative finish. Fun overall. I, I don't know if I'll go all the way to three. I'd say like maybe two and a half. Very good. And so, yeah, so after the match, he goes to the announce table, grabs the mic and says, this doesn't count as a loss because he was dehydrated. He's like huffing and puffing. Um, but next week he'll be back stronger and he's going to take that title from Kidman. So just good stuff to continue to put it over. Um, and he see he sells it so well. Like he does an awesome job, man. He's uh yeah, and um, you know, kudos to him too because he showed he could hang and work. Like they were definitely working like Ray's style of match, and he did not miss a beat in this. Uh, to Matt Hardy's credit. Yeah, um, they they did good. I mean, these two definitely had good chemistry together, and this was one kind of what I was saying how before at times this felt slow, but like kind of like how the Jeff and and Jericho was on Raw. They really heated up at the end, and they they had some creative stuff that they did, and. Overall, I, I like this Matt Hardy much more than any other Matt Hardy that we've seen throughout society. So um, I'm <laughs> cool with uh, I'm cool with version one. All right. Now, this may be something that you you don't remember. Is we get a recap of Brian Kendrick's exploits, whether it be him coming out as a bus boy or streaking. And this will be talking to Sean O'Hara, who's proud of him for um, his outrageous behavior. Um, Kendrick is very nervous because he says, I got in a lot of trouble, man, for that. And uh then all of a sudden, Bill DeMott shows up and throws him into a locker, I guess because he's a bully or whatever. And Sean O'Hare stops him and says that the kids had enough. And so I honestly don't even know what, <laughs> what we were trying to get across. With this. Yeah, I'm, I was interested to see where this is going to go in future weeks. Um, DeMott is, you know, kind of plays that bully that he always was. Um, and I thought he was always good at that role. I mean, he was that in real life, so it's easy to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, yeah, the Kendrick stuff's wacky, but he was, he pulled it off. It, Kendrick to me was always one of the most underrated guys in the industry, um, because he could do this wacky shit and like try to make it its own. And, and I remember some of this stuff, but kind of seeing the timeline of the, some of the stuff he was doing was like the naked Brian Kendrick and reminded me of naked Midian, um, just like just entertaining stupid stuff. But, you know, a guy that, that has a role on a show, like he almost reminded me of like a current day, like Marco stunt during this, uh, um, mm-hmm. just like a little guy that, you know, really is never going to get a push, but he can be a cog to the TV product if, if used correctly. And, you know, just seeing the the recap of him involved in a segment with Undertaker was, I mean, that's cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, entertaining. This segment was weird, and 
you know, with Sean O'Hare being involved, I don't know if it really does ever go anywhere, but I'd like to see where it goes. O'Hare had such a good look. Um, and, you know, just just now he kind of had like that goth look to him. And I mean, just mm-hmm. the way that he was mixing it up here, like I was kind of into the idea of like they go to it of like a Kendrick and Sean O'Hare grouping um, because it was just so like little guy, big guy. I think that that would work. So cool segment um, as far as like something I wasn't really expecting to see with those three names involved. Right. Yeah. It's kind of a random assortment. Yeah. I thought um, in, at least in the promo kind of his delivery, Kendrick kind of had some like uh, early Mikey Whipwreck kind of going on like the, like he's so gnarly. Like, I got in a lot of trouble, man. So I would like to see that continue because that whole uh, gimmick is something I don't think we see enough. But No, no. And he was clearly but, somebody that they mm-hmm. liked enough to, you know, put him to this level. And he ended up working for the company forever. And, um, I mean, Brian Kendrick's a guilty pleasure of mine, for sure. So it was, I was happy to mm-hmm. see this. Right. All right. So we go to our next warm-up match for that No Way Out um, uh, six-man. It's going to be Benoit taking on A-Train. Uh, so a train, I thought looked real dominant in the early parts of this. Like he slams Benoit with these clotheslines, and um, as typical with all these Benoit matches, you could tell those kind of like, yeah, look, just lay your shit in because I mean he was beating the piss out of him. But I thought it was a really great spot. And they they do a really good job of this throughout the match, where Benoit's constantly trying to grab the crossface. Like uh, real early in the match, um, like uh, a train's going to do a clothesline, he just grabs him and tries to put him in the crossface, uh, even if a train escapes. Uh, Super quick, but I just like the way they kept getting that over. A-Train really using a size um, and aggression here. He hits an inverted full Nelson and then hits a Vader bomb, which I thought I was not expecting to see. But I was also not expecting an Antonia Rocca name drop by Taz here, which completely baffles Michael Cole. Uh, He's like, yeah, it reminded me of Antonia Rocca. I was like, damn, it's quite a pull, Taz. But uh, uh, Benoit finally mounts a little bit offense, grabs the Germans, goes for the headbutt, misses it. Uh, we get a close near fall when A-Train hits the big boot. He goes for the Baldo bomb, but as was established throughout the entire match, Benoit is able to use his agility to slide it into the crossface and um, steals the win. So this was like pretty much Benoit getting his ass beat, but I thought they did a good job of not making it seem hokey when he won because throughout the entire match, he had constantly been going through all the, like trying to reverse. It's almost like he knew his only chance of winning this was to slip the uh, cross face on because a train just overpowered him. And so when he finally does, I thought it made sense, even though he got his ass kicked the entire match. So um, I kind of dug it. I went two and a half. Um, I, yeah, this was better than I thought it would be because I mean, 2003 was not a time frame that um, A Train was somebody that was uh, burning the night oil, having great matches. But kind of just shows how good Benoit was, and and kind of just you know Benoit was always so good um, at being the small guy against the bigger opponent, um, and that was you know seen here from bell to bell, and he sold like a maniac. And um, I I struggle with Benoit matches, but. Um, you know, able to watch this with an open mind and a train is somebody that, you know, I always, I became a fan of in later years. Um, but I really, this time frame he really didn't do much for me. Um, but I thought that all things considered, they did well for the, you know, five and a half, six minutes, whatever it was that they got. Um, and yeah, I think you're right in that two and a half, um, phase, I, I, between the selling and the work that Benoit did, it kind of be disrespectful to go less than that. So, um, they did really well with what they were given. So just another, uh, and like we said, like the the clear contrast between this and Raw, where there's such a heavy focus on, like even 
like you rarely are getting any of these matches go under five minutes where we had like maybe one match that went over five minutes on raw. So it's a complete difference in philosophy, but, um, we didn't see the, uh, the, I guess the creator of girls gone wild, Joe Francis, who, um, time has not been kind to him as far as public perception. Uh, there's that, uh, that it got uh, advertised during the most recent NBA playoffs, like incessantly that uh, TNT show where apparently he's a big piece of shit. But anyway, he, uh, he wants Tori to be a special guest for uh, girls going wild. She says she can get pretty wild and uh, he'll give her a call. So definitely you're seeing them try and do this tie in with girls going wild at this point, which I guess this was probably like the, the heyday of girls going wild. I would assume. Yeah. And I appreciated this segment because I watched that documentary recently um, I think mm-hmm. I was uh, I, I was watching like AEW one night. I think it was Rampage, and it was like like late Friday, and nothing going on, and that came on next, and it like immediately took me, and I watched it for like the whole episode. Um, so as I'm seeing this, I'm like, oh well, wow, that's the guy in that doc I just watched. That's interesting. Right. Uh, so this was definitely something that I valued probably more than most as they're watching this, just because of the time that I watched it. You know, right? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a. Very O three. That's the most I could say. Oh about. yeah, absolutely. It's such heavy, heavy two thousand three energy there. All right, so let's see what's in the box. We have Heyman coming out with uh, with his box. He puts over all his clients, uh, Angle, Team Angle, champions. Um, I like that he called Big Show his favorite client, which obviously can't be true. Uh, Taker comes out soon after he does, and we find out in the box it is Chris Canyon dressed as, I mean. If they wouldn't have told me, I don't even know. I don't know if I would have known his boy George. At first, I might have. Th- I think I thought he was just a pirate, <laughs> but he's a uh, boy George. He gets a few cheap shots in on Taker, but quickly gets his shit pushed in. Brutal beatdown, like chairs, uh, throws him on the announce table. Heyman's pleading for mercy from uh, for Taker to to stop, and just the last chair shot, he just absolutely brutal one, like at, like. King had his hand behind his back, so I don't think it was protected. I mean, maybe hit him in the like the back of the neck and not quite the head, but it looked vicious. Just absolutely horrendous chair shot on Canyon. Uh, like I guess the and again, this is just like the Brian Kendrick thing. It's all about the novelty and randomness, like which I guess is fine, though. Knowing like how Canyon's life went, it was kind of depressing to watch him just get the shit beat out of him and take these unprotected chair shots. But I want to say he was like an OVW at this point, so they probably pulled him in for this. But uh, yeah, just kind of another random. I don't know. I just feel like they're every week they just want to see what random pull they can do. And this week it was uh, Chris Canyon. Yeah, that was what I was, and I had to look that up because it felt like it was a return to him here because I knew that he had get chipped out the OVW at the end of O two. Um, yeah, this was his first time back. Um, it just, yeah, I mean, it was sad because I thought Canyon was a guy that had good momentum when he came over to WWE um, with the invasion and just they kind of thwarted it right away. I, I thought that, uh, you know, obviously everybody's like 2001 WCW run. There's really nothing great you can say about any of it just because of how wonky the writing was. But he came into WWE with such promise, really. Um, and they never really were able to figure it out with them and kind of put him into a level. And this was just like kind of depressing to see because, you know, while his delivery of what they wanted him to do was good, um, you know, then he just turned around and got the shit kicked out of him. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't follow up with it, but who knows if you'll see him back on TV in future weeks here. Um, but yeah, definitely a bummer, but you know, def- definitely got a crack out of him singing the culture club song. Right. Right. <laughs> 
So, um, all right. So we continue on. We see Matt Hardy backstage on his, like his Peloton, trying to shed weight while Shannon Moore uh, coaches him, um, which is like one of the only times I've heard Shannon Moore talk on these. Come on, Matt. Come on, Matt. As he's sweating on the uh, on the bike. Uh, we then go to Funaki, the number one announcer who's trying to catch up with John Cena. He tells him, what up, thug? Which, which I got a kick out of. Then he does a, some very offensive racist raps to Funaki about um, dogs and fried rice and other. Uh, like, I was just thinking as I'm watching these, because they have the Guerrero stuff. Like, I don't think 2022 Cena and his, you know, doing main, sh- like, HBO shows and stuff now would want people to go back and see this early uh, Cena rap. Because it, uh, it is some pretty egregious. I mean, I know he's a heel. I don't think it would, like, end his career. But... I feel like Cena now would probably he would probably rather people not see this if possible. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate seeing um, heel Cena here and just the <laughs> dynamic of you know as we build to the main event of this match as they were hyping it up throughout the show is you know you know we're so used in used in modern day being you know babyface Cena versus heel Brock it was it was cool to see the the script flipped here and. The way that they, you know, before they even get to the match, they're having him go full blow heel in the back. Um, and overall, you know, Cena's delivery as a heel was always awesome. And even if it, you know, can be seen as offensive right. to some people, he was doing his right. job. So, um, and that brought right, right. him over to the point that you needed to. Um, and, you know, goofy segment, but it worked in the, the rapping Cena era. Right. Agree. Yeah. No, he's in. Yeah, he does a good job, but it's been working because he's got, I mean, this is arguably his most prominent role since, definitely since he turned heel. So, I mean, they they definitely see what he has because they're pushing him along here. So, we'll see him in just a minute. Before that, we go to another No Way Out six-man tag warm-up match. It's going to be Eddie Guerrero versus Shelton Benjamin. They say Chavo's not here because he has stomach issues. Uh, Taz sums it up that he's been eating that crazy Mexican food, so it must have messed up his stomach, which I thought was a funny Taz line. Uh, A lot of deep arm drags by Shelton. Um, But uh, Eddie comes back with a nice... um, Nice hope sequence hits the uh, the helo, which always looks great. Insane elevation though when Sheldon hits him with the all I can think of is the uh, the old Vince the back body drop because Eddie looked like he went about thirteen feet in the air, just insane height on that. Uh, Eddie decides to dive uh, at Charlie Haas on the outside instead of going after Sheldon in the ring, which ends up costing him when he tries to hit the frog splash because Sheldon recovers enough which uh, caused him to miss it and then gets pinned by, um, but the, I guess they're trying to get this over maybe a Shelton's finish. It's uh, they call it the dragon whip kick, which is kind of like, it's like an enziguri, but he does like a spinning heel kick. I thought it looked pretty great. He got great contact on it and uh, he takes the win with that. And uh, yeah, again, it seems like, I think they're doing a good balance of putting these guys. Over. I mean, I guess maybe you say Eddie shouldn't take the loss, but Eddie's not doing a ton right now. And, uh, you know, credit to these guys for putting these young guys over. Like, it's really worked. Like, it turns out putting, like, amazing wrestlers with these, like, young studs from OVW is, like, a good formula for success because Team Angle have looked great and they've gotten over. So I went two and a half on this. I thought it accomplished its purpose. Yeah, I mean, you, you see Eddie and Shelton Benjamin in a match together and it's like, oh, wow, this is going to be good. Um, short, but you know, again, four minutes of these two going or whatever it was, four and a half minutes of these two going full tilt, thought was entertaining. Um, and 
Eddie was pretty much bulletproof at this point, as far as, you know, he could take an L and be okay. And, and this being, you know, Shelton's spot to really get that big victory to lead to that pay-per-view and make that um, team angle team just seem so much more powerful. Um, thought was the good, the good move. Um, and, you know, Eddie, again, isn't going to miss a beat by taking this loss, especially with like the interference aspect of it as well. Um, but yeah, that dragon whip looked really awesome. Um, it was cool to see this match where it was again, you know, it was four and a half. I wish it was 14, but you just weren't getting that in this, this era of wrestling. And, um, and that's okay because they still got to the point where both guys had their moments of looking good. And, they were able to turn it into something that worked out for both, or, you know, for the guy that they needed to work out to at the end. So, yeah, I think two, two and a half is about right as far as maybe two and a quarter, something in that range. All right. A very, I felt like it was very checked that we cut to this pre-tape thing of Hugh Hefner telling us that a WWD was going to be in Playboy, which... I think we can kind of guess who it's going to be, but he was very like, uh, <laughs> he didn't seem like he was very invested in uh, giving this promo thing. He was just kind of like, uh, yeah, we're going to have a WWE uh, diva in Playboy. <laughs> like that was it. It looked like his his head was somewhere else. I'll say. Yeah, he seemed like he was uh, he was reading the <laughs> cue card and didn't really want to. Um, play the, what was the line? I think it was Playboy looks forward to laying the SmackDown a new stand soon. Uh, just corny, right. um, you know, look, looking barely alive already at this point. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the tie-in of um, Girls Gone Wild right into Playboy, they definitely were were getting Tori juiced up at this point. Yeah, and then they go, we go right into the Valentine's Day broad panties match with uh, Dawn versus Tori. Um, I thought it was wild that T- Taz comes out and says that uh, he's like, the Playboy's going to be Steph, which would have been quite a – a situation current CEO, like you said earlier, Mike, uh, Stephanie oh. fan. That's who t- Taz thinks is going <laughs> to, right. Um, but, uh, like, like this match is just, it's an excuse for them to talk about girls going wild and playboy and, uh, strip each other down. But uh, the highlights to me of this world, I mean, like the things I remember were the commentary, like Cole saying that he owns girl, go- girls going wild tapes was kind of weird. <laughs> like he's like, I own some of those tapes. And then there was a moment where, uh, Taz says something like, oh, I wonder what Al thinks of this. And Cole goes, Taz, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, well, that was an amazing line. Um, bring, which, you know, it's a good time for me to drop in. I, I've, I always love Cole and Taz and, and I kind of mm-hmm. got, you know, anytime I ever listened to these two, I liked it. And, and this was another one of those instances and they played off each other. Well, and if, even when they were saying wacky shit, like you just outlined, the other was able to take it to even another wackier level. And, and overall, they they really did a good job at making even the down points of the show, like this match was, entertaining for you as the viewer. Absolutely, yeah, they were great. Like Taz is just so out there, and Cole's like got to try to be the straight man, and Taz can be like so out the box. Yeah, I love it. But yeah, the match itself. I mean, by the end, they go for like this sunset flip, like reversal sequence where they're trying to grab at each other's pants. Uh, Dawn goes to the top rope, and Tori takes her pants off right there and wins the match. I mean. One star. I mean, is it, I mean, look, we know what they were going for. It was not a Matt classic. They know it. We know it. It was to get out there and let, um, you know, feature Tori and uh, see the ladies and put a bunch of Valentine's Day shit in the in the ring. But and then Nitty comes out, attacks um, Tori, but then Tori comes back and rips off her shorts and spanks her. Just the full on, you know, brawn panties match that you would get on 2003 SmackDown. 
Yeah, I mean, Tori ended up looking good at the end of it. You know, took out two of them. Um, Nitty went running for the hills. Uh, yeah, Tori was, you could tell just by looking at these three at this point, Tori was on a completely different level to this company. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, she should have been. She was the one that had the experience. Um, Don Marie was just kind of the ECW holdover. And, you know, these two seem to feud forever um, in regards to, you know, anything they did on camera. But, um, you know, entertaining for what it was, but the commentary really was what made it palatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they killed it. I love that uh, <laughs> Taz with his. Uh, I think it's going to be stiff. <laughs> it's an insane comment. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, we then go to uh, to get ready for our main event, which is going to be Cena versus Brock. They do a nice uh, side-by-side graphic for these kind of outlaying. I mean, obviously, Brock's got all the major accomplishments. Cena's is more about his rapping ability. Um, I didn't realize at this point in watching these that they've really put over that Cena's finish as the kill switch, which this little thing said. I'd never known that. I guess because he hasn't been winning a ton of matches lately, so... but. Uh, it's going to be Cena versus Brock. Uh, Cena comes out, says he's serious, but he still does his rap. Um, it's all about Brock being dumb. Uh, one of my, the line that said out to me is that, uh, God built me strong, but forget to give me a brain as he's mocking Brock, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> um, which I like Taz gets super serious. He's like, I really don't think this is a good strategy because, <laughs> and then so pissed off Brock just completely unleashes on Cena, starts whipping his ass, like shoulder blocks, back breakers, uh, drops them on the announce table. Um, but Brock tries to maybe gets over aggressive, tries to undo the turnbuckle and a very crafty Cena sneaks in the chain shot while the ref's trying to redo the turnbuckle. So he kind of is able to get a bit of a breath right there, goes at it and, um, starts working over Brock pretty good. Um, I thought they did a good job of like establishing the tension here of like Cena's guys opening can he capitalize? So he tries to ground them, kind of goes with the rear uh, chin lock with the legs wrapped around, just trying to do anything he can to not let Brock recover. Uh, like continues on him, but he can't put him away. Brock fires back up, throws him into the exposed buckle, F5s him. Uh, good night. That's it. But uh, yeah, I thought it was well done. Like the story they told, I thought Cena looked good, like especially in that, um, like he stews around in the beginning like he should, like a heel. But then I thought he looked good. He looked crafty because, you know, he used the chain to get an advantage and uh, he was kind of working over Brock. He just couldn't survive long enough and Brock's just on another level for him. But uh, I thought for what they were going for, I thought they executed well. With two and a half, Brock looks like a beast. And I think Cena doesn't look like a complete punk, honestly. Completely thrown off by Cena in uh, wrestling boots um, (laughs) watching this. (laughs) That was my first takeaway, which is a little strange. But, I mean, obviously Brock was way ahead of Cena at this point in development. Um, but you definitely had points of this match where you saw, you know, that Cena was going to become a megastar um, because he was just, I mean, he didn't seem out of place with Brock, even though you knew that Brock was like the, you know, the champion wrestler before he even hit WWE when, you know, Cena was just, you know, kind of learning on the fly here. Um, but overall, I think that they put a fun little match together. And, you know, I really enjoyed the heel Cena versus Brock dynamic that I'm not used to. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely when I saw that, you know, this was what we were covering and I looked up the main event, looked up the show and I saw this was the main event. It immediately perked my interest. And I think they mm-hmm. delivered off of about what I would have expected from a TV match between these two and Oh three. Um, and you know, it really was before Cena was ready to take that next level, but Brock was, and it was good use to kind of get Brock some shine with a big guy as an opponent. That's also an up and coming star. Um, Cena was still, 
you know, picking up that, that picking his gimmick up, trying to get to that next level. And, and overall, I thought that they put a really fun main event together. I think, yeah, two and I had originally a two and three quarters, um, just because, you know, when all is said and done, they both got some shit in, they were both able to, um, you know, build off each other, grow off each other. And mm-hmm. honestly, I just want to watch more matches of these two to kind of see how their progression goes over time. Uh, but Brock definitely looked like the stud that we all knew he was when this was all said and done. Right. Yeah. I thought the thing that's out for me from what I've seen so far with CD, even the heel run is like, he didn't seem super generic in this. Like he kind of like, I like the chain shot. I think it helps that he didn't have anybody on the outside, like how he's had since he started the heel run. Like he had no like flunky on the outside to help him because I feel like when he does, it's too easy for them to kind of fall back on that trope that it, like too easily where this, he had to kind of rely on himself. And even though he cheated, I thought it made him look good. Like, it was smart to hit Brock with a chain because you're not just going to beat him straight up. So, yeah, I think it's the best. Like, him having a match where he's like, there's a story to it, I think helps Cena a lot here. But, yeah, I think it's one of the best he's had. I think it's his best showing as a heel, honestly. So, good for him. We'll see how he uh, he progresses. But, uh, all right, so now we uh, we have a bit left in this show. Uh, Brock decides to call it Angle, who did not sit ringside like he uh, he encouraged him to. Um, to send a message, he F5 seen into the ring post, which I thought was kind of funny because why would Kurt even care? But I guess it works because Kurt ends up taking the bait. Uh, they do a nose-to-nose stare down, but Angle says, uh, he kind of teases the crowd saying, you know, should we have the match tonight? Uh, you know, Olympic gold medalist versus NCAA champion, but not tonight because he has a sinus infection. Brock calls him a chicken shit. Angle says that uh, they can do it next week. Brock accepts it and clotheslines Angle, hits him with a belly to belly on the floor, just starts whipping his ass. Finally, Team Angle show up in time to save him from getting thrown to the ring post again, like how he got injured initially. Brock lays them out, just looks like a complete monster. It's like we talked about earlier, just has this in- insane intensity that like the crowd kind of feeds off of him. Um, and you were kind of uh, mentioning earlier, uh, like – it just feels like a money match. These guys just seem like two studs. You want to see what's going to happen with this. He F5 Shelton just for good measure. Uh, Angle cowers up the ramp, and Brock just goes up to him and throws the belt at him. But just the the way these guys both commit to anything they're doing, like I thought this is a really good closing angle to continue to build between these two. And it's like, like you said earlier, you just want to see this. It feels like the way they're building it and with these two guys, it feels like a match that's like worthy of mania. Yeah, it it really was a collision course. I mean, this was probably the best match they could run with their current roster and trying to get Brock over um, to that next level. Angle's always going to be the perfect opponent for almost anybody, but Brock especially with their backgrounds. Um, Yeah, I mean, really strong closing angle. I mean, this really had me jacked up for what was coming next. And and I thought that, you know, Brock standing tall at the end of it was exactly what they needed to do at this point of the story. Um, and, you know, now all eyes can focus on no way out and that six man. Yep. And I think they've done a good job with it. Like that he's only been around for like less than a year at this point. And he went from being this almost like Vader style heel. And, you know, I think his baby face thing has been a bit up and down, but here, I think they figure it out pretty quickly, like what his baby face character should be. So credit to him and them for like figure it out so quickly a guy that just seems like a natural heel and finding a way to turn him to a face that the crowd like connects with is, you know, they've done a good job with it. I think he's just so good at this. That yeah. 
It, does, that's it what doesn't matter say. what he does. <laughs> He's <laughs> so good, it would have been impossible to screw this up. And I mean, there's the people that they've screwed up that thought like can't misses in the background weren't Brock Lesnar. Like nothing mm-hmm. was going to derail this guy. He had all has all the talent, still does. Um, I mean, the the fact that he's still, you know, at the level he's at in 2022 shows you in 2000. I mean, this was 20 years ago, and he was still that that you know force that you know you, you know, really could have as the linchpin to your show. And he was definitely the guy to hitch the wagons to. And and I love how you know a year in or whatever it was, they didn't they didn't waste their time. They they knew what they had with this guy, and and they went right to it. And you know the the biggest Brock Lesnar. Uh, mystery is, you know, what would have happened if he never left WWE? I mean, how good of an in-ring performer would he have become? Um, but, I mean, the guy just built his mystique up from here, and this is really, it's so fun looking back at the early stages of Brock and how can't miss he was, even when you were seeing him in his early stages. Yep, 100%. So, uh, that closes up the show. We'll get to our final thoughts on SmackDown. I thought, you know, maybe not a ton of angle advancement but i thought they did what they needed to because really uh, most of these matches were kind of building to that six man and then you got the good the the main event angle i thought was super well done and i dug the in-ring stuff in here i thought there were a lot of real interesting matchups that got timed. the matt hardy stuff was interesting so even though it seemed like it was maybe a, a bit too heavy on wrestling or not angle advancement i think they did enough and i think they struck a bit of a better balance than what we saw in ross and i'm going six out of ten on this one yeah, I think six is fair. I mean, I, I, I don't think it was like head and shoulders above Raw, but it was definitely better. Um, you know, and, and as we start looking towards like No Way Out, that was where I think SmackDown's big miss was because they did a really good job building up that six man. Um, and I, I'm sure, you know, watching the network and, and Peacock, you know, obviously they probably did video packages for Rock Hogan that we didn't see on the Peacock feed. Um, but it just seemed like Raw had more of a commitment towards building No Way Out than SmackDown did, at least on the, on the recap here. Um, and, you know, obviously there's things that they're building, like, you know, Matt Hardy against, you know, if he's going to get down to cruiserweight weight for the pay-per-view. Um, you know, what what will be something that Mysterio does? You know, I'm sure he'll have something on the show in some capacity. But it just seems like as we build towards the pay-per-view, Raw did a little bit more to get us to that point, but SmackDown as general, you know, consensus in this era um, was much better in ring and just a better, you know, entertainment show as far as, you know, minute, you know, minute to minute, you know, match to match. There wasn't that 30 second squash like you saw a couple times on Raw, you know, um, everything flowed better. Everything, you know, kind of made people look good, even in losses where you couldn't really say that on Raw. Right. Yeah, a bit more focus it tends to be. And I think they do have the benefit of being a tape show so they can kind of, you know, cut the fluff, I think, a bit to make it feel like a tighter show, but it is what it is. Uh, so we will go to our awards best match. I kind of had a, a few that were kind of all in the same range, but I think I'm going to go with Ray versus Matt because I like the creativity they put in kind of working the Matt losing weight into the match itself. Yeah, I, I'm going to go Jericho and... Um... Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Hardy. I thought that that was just the the overall better match. I thought the finish, you know, even though the Matt Hardy Ray creative finish was cool, I thought the best wrestled match, um, bell to bell, was the uh, Jericho Jeff Hardy match. 
Yeah, I can go with that. Yeah, there was a, there's a few matches on these that are kind of all in that same kind of ballpark. Um, best moment for me, I just had the whole Brock versus Team Angle, um, kind of the showdown at the end where Brock's, um, you know, going after Angle and stuff. Mine was was Vincing and na na na. I mean, he was just so <laughs> over the top with it, and and that's my lasting memory of these the, this you know four hours of TV or you know three hours if you take the, the commercials out. Yeah, that and that's insane strut. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> um, best show I went with SmackDown, but uh, like you said, not not like it was. It is sometimes where SmackDown's way better. I thought it was a, a tad better this week. It wasn't the the farthest of uh, of margins. Agree. And looking at the two rosters and looking at who had matches on both shows, SmackDown, you know, should be the best show every week, you know. But Raw did good. I mean, Raw was entertaining with the, that story long, uh, or, you know, show long angle. And, you know, Vince obviously at this point was going to make anything he was on better. So Raw was close, but the overall better show, I agree with SmackDown. LVP, I went with Tommy Dreamer. Um, he just gets tried out there to look like a complete loser every week. Yeah, and I was going to say Dreamer too, but I was in the fence between him and D'Lo. So uh, right. D'Lo was another one that, they, you know, they they gave the pre-match angle to and, you know, um, Teddy Long trying to convince um, Booker T that D'Lo is on his level and then he loses in a minute and a half. So both of those, that was 1A and 1B for least valuable. Yep, and my MVP, I'm going to go with Brock. He was awesome in that main event with Cena, and then the post-match, the the closing show angle was really good, too. Yeah, and, um, you know, again, I was on the fence with him and Jericho because I think Jericho had the good match on Raw, but he also had a really good angle um, early in the mm-hmm. show, and not even angle, but a backstage segment. I mean, I, I could even say any mix of Vince, Bischoff, JR, because they all played their roles so well. Um, but overall, I think, you know, Jericho was the piece that held the, the wrestling side of Raw together. Um, so, and I, I would say Brock, but just to be, you know, a little argumentative, I'm going to say Jericho. Works for me. Um, who else did Jeff is maybe like some standouts, like uh, maybe four or five standout performers besides your MVP? Shelton. I think Shelton for sure was somebody that you saw the star in here. Um, and, you know, being more, mostly a tag guy leading into this, you know, you had that big you know, singles win for him over Eddie. Um, Rey Mysterio looked awesome in that match. Um, and, you know, even going over to Raw, I thought that they did a really good job, you know, reestablishing Jeff Hardy. Um, as somebody that, you know, he hasn't been a player now for a bit, but now, you know, he has this good match. And even in a loss, you know, they establish him in the Christian, Christian runoff. And, and now at that point, they're able to, you know, put him in that, you know, good match with Jericho. So, you know, maybe it's time to heat this guy up a little bit. And I, I want to give another shout to, to, uh, Jerry Lawler. I thought Jerry Lawler was put kind of in a tough spot here, but he did his, he held his own. Um, and he was able to turn, you know, coach who was pretty green at this point into a pretty reputable performance, I think. And and that's something that doesn't always come um, easy. So Jr. was taken away from him and Jr. you know, makes everybody's life easier when you're in a commentary booth with him at this point. Um, but, you know, Lawler was able to keep it together pretty well with somebody he wasn't comfortable with. Okay. I'm with you on Jeff, um, which it's been a while since he's had a stand-up performance, so good for him. I had Matt Hardy. I thought he was good getting that whole angle over with the uh, trying to become a cruiserweight. Ray, I thought, was excellent. 
uh, Cena, I thought, for being, you know, put in that position, I think did well for himself. And also, of course, we've said it, uh, Vince. He just adds, he's insane and entertaining, and he just adds, you know, you can see why they all, they, there's always that trope of like, you know, they want to trot the Batmans out whenever they feel the ratings are dropping. And I mean, there is some, there's a reason behind this because, I mean, he's, like Vince particular is just entertaining. Like he could just come out and he just has this like maniac energy that is just entertaining. I don't know, but yeah. So I was, I was with you on a few of those. So, uh, but thanks for coming on Mike. Tell us what you got. Uh, well, anything you have going on, but particularly clotheslines and headlines, which you guys rebooted. Uh, not long yeah. Ago. Yeah. That's the primary thing right now. Um, you know, we kind of, Ryan was was bouncing ideas around after um, Cardoso Daily kind of got the Knicks, and you know he his preview shows were always good, but you know it felt like he was kind of leaving some WWE stuff on the table, and some of those preview shows you kind of not able to talk about a lot of like the current product, just kind of what they were putting on the pay per views, and the way WWE does these premium live events now is. You know, they some of them might only have six or seven matches and they might be pushing, you know, they've got five hours of TV every week. And, and um, there's always going to be people that are pushed, like think of like a current day, like Gunther, who hasn't had a pay-per-view match yet, uh, but he's an intercontinental champion. Guys like that, we you know, Ryan wasn't able to talk about on those pay-per-views because he was on those previews because he was pretty much just previewing what was laid out and then maybe, you know, talking about what might come out of the premium live event so now we're able to kind of because we do a lot of fun stuff like ryan has a cool segment called um ryan's thing of the week that's that's literally the name of it when it's just whatever he comes up with like we've done um like you know this past week we did the like standout um like matches of the first half of the year with wwe um you know we cover nxt in pretty good detail too um you know we we've been in kind of a good spot with you know we typically record on wednesdays and it goes live on fridays and we've kind of been given the gift of vince mcmahon the last few weeks so um we, we roll into our fourth week coming up and we'll be previewing SummerSlam. so you guys will be catching that you know this comes out thursday i think so you'll be catching that tomorrow and you know, a lot of people from the network i know are going down to nashville for the um SummerSlam show so um check it out uh, we definitely do some fun stuff it's it's myself um rocco martone and uh ryan every week and then we have like a rotating fourth um that just kind of leads us through things and you know we're able to get some fresh perspectives and i feel like every week although we've had similar voices um obviously with the three of us every week they've all been their own entity so i'm excited to see where we go with it and you know bi-weekly kind of on fridays opposite the AEW show it's a good mix and you know it kind of lets us put a different spin on the WWE cycle than, uh, you know, the rest of the network does in regards to, you know, really being the only one that's given you the non evergreen content. So uh, I said to see where it goes. And, and I think that we're off to a good start with it. And, you know, now we get to really dig our teeth into one of the big four this coming week. So uh, definitely mm-hmm. tune in and, and thank you for having me on. It was fun to kind of not cover the the new stuff for once, you know. I I, right, I, I right. miss I miss uh, watch doing Cronoso daily because it, um, you know, when else am I going to watch a Kamala match from 1988? You know what I mean. <laughs> so right. it, it's it, this gave me some good nostalgia and you know made me realize, well, shit, I should watch some more of this old stuff too. So um, no, I appreciate everything that you do with this show too, and um, mm-hmm. appreciate me getting the shout here. 
Yeah, awesome. And like you guys covered the, uh, which I think is awesome. It's, you guys recap the shows, but you also look at like the uh, the news part of it too, which I think is part of close eyes and headlines. But certainly, um, there's uh, some big headlines to cover right now. So it's a um, it's a interesting timing that you guys came back, like started it up because of what everything that's going on. You certainly won't be uh, lacking for topics to talk about. We'll put it no, the day, literally the day we recorded our first show was the day that the first Vince scandal came out. Um, and we had to pretty much reformat how we did everything on that show. Um, and then we disconnected from each other that night and, you know, the news broke that Sasha got released. Um, so uh it, we've had we've been kind of gifted with that like almost to the point that we're starting to feel like the vince stuff's repetitive and three weeks into it now we go into a fourth week and and now we can talk about how vince is out the door so right. uh vince mcmahon's kind of been the gift that keeps giving for us on this show um and you know it's kind of made some of these shows go maybe a little bit longer than we we had hoped for but um, you know, nobody's ever going to not want to talk about Vince McMahon. So, um, you know, there's been, you know, developments enough each week that we've been able to kind of put everything into a good format. And, you know, I think it's worth checking out if you, if, even if you don't watch the current day product, um, listen, listen to the show before the, the pay-per-views and we'll catch you up to speed. And, you know, when, when something sucks, we tell you it sucks. We're not going to just tell you everything's good. So you might, you might not always agree with us, but normally there's one of us that thinks something sucks along the way for everything so um we're a good mix and i think that you'll enjoy it very good it's good to not just have yeah it's good to have you guys doing um that we're not all just watching old shit like i do it's good that you guys are actually covering and giving perspective on the new stuff it's awesome but um as for me thanks again uh Mike for coming on, but I will be back in two weeks for the uh, go home to No Way Out 2003, and uh, we'll see how that show shakes out, and then we'll be on to uh, Mania 19, which I'm really looking forward to see the bill for that. There's some stuff that I certainly remember as being like all time great stuff. So we'll do that in a couple weeks, and I'll see you then on the Roots Regress podcast. Later.